It's all bullshit, and you can quote me on that. But more importantly, you can also quote Dr. Alexander Miasnikov, Russia's head of coronavirus information, from offguardian.org by Kit Knightley. We have, I, I hope, I, I, if, if it wasn't enough, if you couldn't smell the bullshit already, it, it's... It, I, I just, I gotta read it and have it real clear here in black and white for everybody's benefit. The story starts, it's all bullshit, three leaks that sink the COVID narrative. In recent days, a series of leaks across the globe have further shown the official line, that official line, on coronavirus does not hold water. I look at this graphic. I love this. Look at the bucket with all the holes in it. This is great. And, and I, the, the introduction to this, this is this is absolutely critical that, that everybody just these these core points. The science of the coronavirus is not disputed. It is well documented and openly admitted. Look at these. Five basic points. One, most people won't get the virus. Like, and this is not just won't get it bad or won't, like, just won't get it. Like, a lot of flu viruses out there, just other viruses out there, just people don't get, some people just have, like, a sort of natural immune, their immune system is so good that the virus hits their body even if they get in touch or they're around it, they won't get it. Or they're just in a kind of lifestyle where they'll never get exposed to it or they're isolated enough from it or the virus just isn't the viral <laughs> fear that it's been made out to be. Point number two, most of the people who get it won't display symptoms. And a, a part of this has been really important in the statistics that we've been seeing with this, most of the people who get it won't display symptoms because they've been using leaving this out as a way of radically overinflating the mortality rate of this virus. Because if they ignore, if they say, well, uh, we had a death rate of 5% of patients with symptoms. You go, oh, my God, 1 in 20 people who get it. No, that's of the – most people don't even show any symptoms. Point number three, most of the people who display symptoms will only be mildly sick. And this is as in less than a normal seasonal flu. That's what we're seeing with this. Number four, most of the people with severe symptoms will never be critically ill. That's because the biological threat of the virus to, unhealthy, to a healthy individual is almost insignificant. It's only for the, you know, they've been using this as the, you know, the part of the fear-mongering and, 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 and a, a way of getting this social bullying. Well, you're, you're not caring for the elderly and immunocompromised because you're not wearing your mask at the grocery store. How dare you? No. And, and, and re like, what does it represent, you know, as, as the threat 
to those people. Yeah, about the same as same as the flu. If you're old, and, you know the well these. These nursing homes are having, and this is a place where you know, there is a, a place for legitimate concern. Yeah, we have a funky off-season flu that's you know, killing some old people, like pretty significantly, or a bad flu even. So, you know, if, if you if you go, oh my god, you know, the elderly and immunocompromised. No, like no, this is this is something. Or you're gonna be, if you want to be afraid for the elderly and immunocompromised, and you've never gone. And like volunteered at an at an AIDS clinic, you've never gone and volunteered at an elderly home. You've never helped an you know, old person out in your community. And now, well, no, you better wear your mask, or you're you're you don't care about old people. Got started, really? No, no this is, this is a, it's a manufactured sentiment. Point number five, and most of the people who get critically ill will survive. Again, the mortality rates and the bullshit around this is so scary. So back to the story. This is borne out by the numerous serological studies which show again and again that the infection fatality ratio is on par with the flu. There is no science and increasingly little rational discussion to justify the lockdown measures and overall sense of global panic. Well, is there, you know, I kind of want to challenge this one point in the story. Is there an overall sense of global panic? No. There's an artificial sense of panic for people who don't know how to question government, don't know how to question the mainstream media. But is there is there a real is there a sense of global panic? If there's a global panic right now, it's about the economic implications, which are a far bigger threat than the virus itself. Nevertheless, it's always good to get Official acknowledgement of the truth, even if it has to be leaked. Here are three leaks showing that those in power know that the coronavirus poses no threat and in no way justifies the lockdown that is going to destroy the livelihoods of so many. Already has. Already has. As we've analyzed here on Adam vs. the Man several times, it's crystal clear, clear painstakingly clear even, that the real crisis we are facing right now is a forced unemployment crisis. And, you know, in in light of all of the response to the George Floyd protests slash riots and everything else politically since then, I don't know if forced unemployment crisis even captures it. Because there's something deeper going on here. The rich are getting richer, the poor are getting poorer faster than ever before in human history. You want to challenge me on that? Do the math. I dare you. Nine trillion something plus who knows how many dollars of liquidity added to the market through the Federal Reserve System, through emergency loans. I mean, this is absolute insanity. So number one, it's all bullshit. On May 26th, Dr. Alexander Miasnikov, Russia's head of coronavirus information, gave an interview to former presidential Candidate Ksenia Sobchak, in which he apparently let slip his true feelings. Believing the interview over, the camera turned off, Miasnikov said, it's all bullshit, it's all exaggerated, it's an acute respiratory disease with minimal mortality. Why has the world, the whole world, been destroyed? That I don't know. Uh, well, I, <laughs> your, your government, I, I, I kind of got to call bullshit on that last part. You know. 
<laughs> you know, you know. Why? Is it, why? So the rich can keep getting richer and the poor can keep getting poor and that process can just be accelerated. Number two, COVID-19 cannot be described as a generally dangerous disease. <laughs> oh, shocking. According to an email leaked to Danish newspaper Politiken, the Danish health authorities disagree with their government's approach to the coronavirus. They covered in two articles, blah, blah, blah. blah. It just, the quote is so funny here. The Danish health authority continues to consider that COVID-19 cannot be described as a generally dangerous disease as it does not have either a usually serious course or a high mortality rate. Now, what's the government's response to this? I, I love how in this article we have this, this little bit Rounding off point number two, on March 12th, the Danish parliament passed an emergency law which, among many other things, decreased the power of the Danish health authority, demoting it from a regulatory authority to just an advisory one. Oh, you're going to advise us to do the right thing? You're going to advise us to not rip off our people? Well, at least you're not regulatory. We'll, we'll let you be that advisory agency. Number three, a global false alarm. Earlier this month on May 9th, the report was leaked to the German alternate media magazine Tickets Einblick, titled Analysis of, crisis, of the Crisis Management. The report was commissioned by the German Department of the Interior, but then its findings were ignored, prompting one of the others to release it through non-official channels. The fallout of that, including attacks on the authors and minimizing of the report's findings, is all very fascinating. We highly recommend this detailed report on strategic culture. Or if you want to read the full report in German, the link's in there for that, too. We're going to focus on just the report's conclusions. The dangerousness of COVID-19 was overestimated. Probably at no point did the danger posed by the new virus go beyond the normal level. The danger is obviously no greater than that of many other viruses. There's no evidence that this was more than a false alarm. During the corona crisis, the state has proved itself as one of the biggest producers of fake news. After being attacked in the press and suspended from his job, the leaker and other authors of the report released a joint statement calling on the government to respond to their findings. If the current crisis was being approached rationally by all parties, these leaks would seal the debate. Evidence is piling up that the people in charge knew from the very beginning that the virus was not dangerous. The question remains: is, why are these leaks happening now? Well, as long as they're happening, finally, we're getting some sense of the truth. I think a false alarm, I think that's really a good way of describing this, what we have just been through. But who pulled the alarm? You think back to, like, middle school, right? Jim, do you, you ever have a false alarm? Someone went, oh, some, yeah. some kid went and pulled the fire alarm, a smoke yeah. detector set off with something, or just like, you know, like I, I blew up the boys' bathroom in middle school with a fireball bomb. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, that was, that, was, that was a real alarm in that case. Well, no, like, I, you remember false alarms, like going to government schools? I, maybe maybe now in today's hyper-regulated government school environment, kids can't get away with this kind of stuff or are afraid to. But kids would, pull, like, to get out of a test, right? You pull the fire alarm. And then chaos ensues in which you get to take advantage of the situation. Maybe 
you get to sneak in somewhere and steal something because everybody's out on the basketball courts lined up, counting off. And you go, who's missing? Oh, little Johnny. Little, jo- little Johnny's up, up, up to no good again. Well, in this case, little Johnny is big brother. And big brother is definitely up to no good, taking advantage of the panic. They pulled the false alarm, and they keep they keep ringing this bell, right? It's still, you know, and, and maybe maybe that part's slowing down, right? This is why the, the media and the government, oh, we got, we're we're losing credibility over the coronavirus. Let's shift to the next fabricated crisis, the George Floyd crisis. Is it going to work? I don't know. I I hope not. I think their credibility is shot. But hey, it was shot with me a long time ago. The question is, would this be the last nail in the coffin, not just for the coronavirus narrative, but the narrative that government is at all good, righteous, or necessary? And today is Monday, June 8th, 2020. You're listening to Adam versus the Man. Thank you so much for joining us, especially for everybody joining us live. And just a personal note to start out, I hope you guys had a lot of fun with Jim last week with two special episodes on Wednesday and Friday, and you had a little fun with me on Tuesday with a special Blackout Tuesday episode, and as CJ pointed out to me personally, he's like, hey man, do you want to do a short show, or do you want to skip the show today? No, it's it's Blackout Tuesday, he got another excuse to stay home from work. You know, that's one of the things about the corona crisis, about how revealing it was. When, hey, here's a handy, ex- like all of a sudden, what, what did corona represent for society? Here's an excuse to do all of these things. Which of these things would you like to do? Would you like to sit home on unemployment and watch Tiger King over and over again and run through all of your Netflix to watch list? Like, would you, would you like to? catch up on all of your slovenly indulgence? Would you like to not have to buy pants for a while and telecommute to work? Would you like to bully your neighbors with with virtue signaling and all would you would you like to get government handouts? Well a lot of people said cool. <laughs> yeah, check me out. Sign me up for the coronavirus sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> Where do I sign up? You know? And and then some of us were like, uh no, we're we're Fight the bullshit, and we're gonna keep. I, I, I mean, I, I worked harder. Like you, when when shit started ramping up, like, whoa, things. I gotta start paying attention. Shit's getting crazy. Like, ugh, someone's got to be a, a sheepdog here, so the sheep don't just get let off a cliff. Where I, I really maybe maybe that analogy, a smaller pen. As we're all being kind of led into smaller, really small pens. Your house, you know, and your house plus approved businesses is now your official slave pen for being a citizen of the empire in the United States of America. And, you know, some people said, well, oh, we have this excuse to rip people off. You know, excuse to scam people, to take advantage of people. And then you saw all of that. And the coronavirus, you know, really was a, a very revealing kind of moment for a lot of people. But last week, uh, my wife Samantha had some health issues, and she has a brain tumor. Now, I, it sound that by itself, you go, "Holy shit!" Right? Oh my god, you got a brain tumor. By the time you notice it, you go, "That's some scary shit!" Right? Not quite as bad as it sounds. Just from that, she was diagnosed when she was 19 with a benign fluid-filled cyst on the brain. And and when we talked to her, a neurologist recently, 
and she starts she describing this whole. He was like, "Yeah, well, it's it's you know, it's like this like this mole on my arm, you know, it's just it's in your brain." So, and you go, "Oh, okay." It's more, but if the mole grows into your brain, you know, it can cause some problems. So we don't we still don't know exactly what's going on. We got her an MRI on Friday, and we're waiting for the results. Uh, we got some other other treatment and um, you know other things we're doing to, to deal with all of the health issues associated with what looks like potentially it, it either you know having burst and and maybe just needing antibiotic treatment, possibly having grown and needing to be surgically removed. So you know uh, we're just we're, we're looking forward to you know you know now that we kind of know it's or we're about to know what's going. We're kind of on the right track to dealing with this. So thank you everybody for being flexible and understanding last week. And uh, yeah, we had to we had to drive into Phoenix twice. That's um, you know two and a half three hour drive depending on where you're going in Phoenix. So it was uh, it was it was a rough week, but it feels like we're we're on the right track. And uh, hopefully anything that, that ha- you know if she has to go in for surgery, I'll be gone for another day and <laughs> serve for that. Um, but hopefully what we'll be able to have we'll be able to handle this. With, with medication, and uh, she was controlling with CBD for a long time, so we can monitor there. Anyway, enough, enough about that before before she feels like I'm violating her privacy. But I think she's comfortable with at least talking about that, you know, just basic overview of, of, of what's going on. Oops, got to adjust my chair so it's, like, perfectly in shot and symmetrical here. I love this little setup here. For, for not having a cameraman, this is pretty cool. All right, and then this weekend, I don't know if anybody can tell, can you see, Jim, can you see my right eye, my right eyelid? You, when you look in close in person, it's still a little puffy. Um, when I woke up this morning, it was like, oh, shit, like without the black eye, but like black eye swollen. That was because I got a piece of cement in my eye yesterday. I didn't flush it out. Yeah. I just, I just like, I rubbed it and scratched it. It was just like, it was, you weren't wearing eye. So this weekend, we had a lot of fun. We had our first big cement mixing day in a while working on Jim's dome home. So that's really exciting. I mean, I had, I had my safety glasses on, like I almost always wear outside working at the garden. And I, I got, I got, it must have been like a grain of sand with just a little bit of Portland on it. And, and I just, and then I woke up and I was like, oh man. Uh, but yeah, just this morning, walking around, rubbing it a little bit. I'm, I'm like, yeah, I see when I go like that. And now you can tell. Anyway, enough about me geeking out on my weird facial shit. Comment Jim Freedom in studio with us hey, today, hey, Mr. Freedom. Oh, look at that beautiful shot. Pull this right up. Let's see, uh, Draco Chainmail. He he tried to join us last week on a video, but his internet was low. Ah. He said, "Hey guys, just wondering if you got my email about the off-grid tech ideas." Did I did. It? I looked. At, I haven't had a chance to read it. I marked it. It's on my list today. Got an admin day. This weekend was play around on the property all, all weekend. Did some tree trimming, some gardening. That was fun. Yeah. That was a good day. By the way, uh, I got a piece of Portland in my eye, too, because I wasn't wearing eye protection, like yeah. you pointed out. That's what's funny is I wasn't wearing eye protection all day, but I washed it out right away. I noticed I got it in there. I stopped, put everything down, was spraying it. Uh, Helen and Pete were helping me out. They gave me some CBD eye drops. Yeah. It made me just fine. Yeah. So. You need yeah, to <laughs> yeah. You wish you, you Well, I could have if I had just stopped and then, like I scratched it for like an hour. Yeah, it was like, is there so I could like it was so small, like literally, like 
either a grain of sand or a speck of Portland. For people who don't know, cement's a lot of fun. If you've never worked with concrete, like, now I'm like, everybody's like, wait, wait. That was, that was a quick turn. Yeah, but if, if you've never worked with cement, it's a lot of fun. And it's really cool to have, like, when you, when we see, I mean, to me, one of the, like, a lot of the stuff that we study in libertarianism, when you're, when you're trying to understand government and politics and economics, you know, you go, why didn't they teach me this kind of basic shit in school? You know, you go like, wait, that's how, vo- that's how the political part, that's how Congress works? Because they didn't. They never do. And, and, and then it's the same thing with, like, basic construction. Like, I really think more people should know how, like, if, I don't think we stick frame homes should be the dominant construction paradigm right now. Like, we should, it, it, it's a product of building, zoning, uh, code enforcement, laws, regulations, corporatism, subsidization of the, the uh, lumber industry, and, and different things in construction, a lot of bullshit. That's why we have standardized stick frame homes that are, are high maintenance, right? So it's sort of like an auto. You remember who killed the electric car? Did you ever see the documentary? Mm-hmm. If, you, if you haven't, that's that's a must watch from the nineties. And the reason they, one of the reasons they killed it, one of the big financial incentives, is that with the modern car, like when you buy a car, you're not really buying a car. Like when you go to a dealership, they're not really sell, they're selling you financing. That's how they make money, even as a dealership. They don't really make with selling cars is the excuse to sell you financing that they have a bigger margin off, right? If they can break even on the car itself and then make, you know, a couple thousand dollars charging you interest over the next few years, that's a better deal for them. But here's the other catch. Maintenance. Oil, oil filters, and... uh, you know, basic shit. Like, mainly oil and oil oil filters, I think. Yeah. You just go through. And cars, so much money. And we just, being the dominant transportation paradigm right now, we just kind of accept it and go, oh, yeah, that's what it costs to have a car. It doesn't have to be that way. You know, like, in electric cars are just more efficient, you know, in the bottom line energy-wise and resource-wise. It's in your bottom line, your experience as a car owner for maintenance. You go, holy shit. Yeah, they don't teach, and it's the same thing with construction. Like, they don't teach you, even, like, what I was getting at with the six-frame home is that more Americans should understand, like, how basic two-by-four framing and sheetrock and insulation and slabs and foundations work. I didn't know any of that stuff until in my mid-30s I got into homesteading and alternative construction. And then it's like, it's like becoming a libertarian, pulling back the curtain on the entire housing and construction paradigm, the way that we as libertarians generally have pulled back the curtain on, on government and power and money and economic manipulation and things like that. So, it was, yeah, but um, this is my plug for the Garden of Freedom today. And if you go to our Instagram page, let's see how quick CJ is with the graphics. We got some new photos up, some cool stuff. Sam took a lot of cool pictures of the work this weekend. We got... We got puppies this week, too, by the way. There's, <laughs> there's. well, I wanted to name her Raksha, you know, like the wolf in the Jungle Book, because she's Baloo's sister. Blue, the bears, mine, uh, my dog. Okay, so we don't have any cement pictures, but that top left one, that's us moving a tree Saturday. Oh, you gonna, can you play that, CJ? Oh, yeah. Oh, look, this is a really cool one-minute video. So we've got it dug out. 
And this is me pulling it back. We're like rocking it back and forth. There's a really nice firm root ball. So we were able to rock it back and forth and, and backfill. And then this is digging the hole for it to go into. And this, this is a really quick video. I was just Instagram. So, you know, here they were dragging it over. You can see through that other, it's not a good shot there. But it's the only one we got is dragging it over on the tarp and then putting it in place and then packing it in. Anyway, <laughs> all right. So that was one of the things we did this week, and that was a lot of fun. And, and we're, we're going to have more pictures up there in the next couple of days. Yeah. Oh, today, probably today. I should go through before and after pictures. Yeah. I was just too dog tired to post them last night. Jim, next, tomorrow, tomorrow is my, my next, tomorrow afternoon, we're, we're going to do a, we're going to pick a really big tree to do a before and after time mm-hmm. lapse, like tree trimming. Just for a little tree. Just, I, well, I kind of want to do the tree. We'll do the ring, too, for the time lapse. Yeah. But I, I just I want to, like, stage all the gear, set up your camera and tripod, do the time lapse, and you'll see, like, what we're doing here. with. The, I'll stop. I'll stop. I can keep going. But if, right. If you want to come out here, send me an email, adam at thefreedomline.com. If you're interested in buying land out here, want to help you get involved with all of that. We want to help people make the leap to a more libertarian lifestyle, to living off-grid, and, and all of that. So, Adam at thefreedomline.com. Jim, any super chats or hot comments uh, yet this I morning? I have not seen any super chats as of yet. One comment I wanted to make sure to ask you, Ride With Me 38 was asking, Minneapolis voted to abolish the police. He would love to hear your take on that. Yeah, I've been following that story. Did, did we cover that on Friday or Thursday? Uh, we did, no. I, I, maybe I just shared it on social media, um, but no, it's it's. I'm fa- I'm waiting for the point to cover that when it co- like because I heard that there was there was first one city council member who came out and said yeah it's time to explore different things and there's push like it, I mean I might skip this story altogether if it doesn't go anywhere and it hasn't really yet. There are bigger stories. One of the ones we're going to get to today, uh, the possibility of 600 police quitting their jobs in New York, right? Um, I, I'm, I'm a little suspicious of jumping into this story because it sounds like at this point it's reactionary political pandering. Oh, yeah, we hear your cries. We're going to defund the police. Look at us. We're progressive Minneapolis City Council. And by the way, all the talk about like disbanding, defunding the police, I'm I'm obviously 100 percent for it. Um, you know, and, and 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 to what extent you know public safety force is needed? It should be localized. It should be minimal uh, in terms of you know force. Uh, if the bigger social problems are addressed, the incentives that create the situations where you have conflict that requires a a violent intervention go way down. But um, in terms of the transition. This isn't that extreme when you say defund uh, the police at the city level. Because, oh, shit, a city with no police. No, it's a city that only has county police. Oh, they're just called sheriff. You know, it's it's like, (laughs) hello, we already have. Like, how many layers of, like, if you live in a city with its own police department, I mean, if you live in D.C., there, there are 13 something agencies yeah, that actually operate as street level law enforcement in Washington, D.C. Fucking crazy. And the main one is MPD, Metropolitan Police Department. 
there's Secret Service, which actually does street patrol and stuff. Um, there's Treasury Police. There's Parks Police. There's like a bunch of different agencies that have like limited area jurisdiction, or but they still patrol and do arrests. I mean, it's insane. So you have city government, or you have city police, you have your county sheriffs, you have state police, you have state highway patrol, possibly, you have state uh, bureau of investigations, which is the the state equivalent of the FBI. Some states have you know CIA proxies as well. So I think actually getting you know uh, policy wise. Getting rid of everything except the county sheriffs, um, and maybe having, you know, one national network or statewide networks for coordinating. But in terms of active law enforcement, if you have the sheriffs that can do, they, they can get few, they get fugitives, and they do court enforcement. So you still have all of that. And now I, I, I hate how moderate I sound here, but back to the main story about like defunding the Minneapolis police. That considering the current paradigm. That would be a pretty big step, and that's a big department. Minneapolis is a big city, so I'm gonna I'm gonna wait until we see, you know, a little more decisive coverage. Or they, what was the story today? Did, did I miss it? Did they actually vote? And there's no way that happened that fast. And it's like, yeah, here's our plan, and here's a voter on, and here's, but like that would be the point at which I would cover that story. Does that make sense? Right, right. All right, we got a super I'll chat. An update on that while you're doing it. All right, super chat from Scott Kouslin or Kouslin. How much to read my 30-page book and post to YouTube? Well, $2 to ask the question, Scott. Thank you so much for the first super chat of the day. And really, for just a dollar, thanks to YouTube, you can jump in here and um, get on the top of our comment stack. Comment Jim Freedom on the ball today. Uh, Scott, you know, email to me if it's 30 pages if it's interesting. You know, uh, post to you. You want them to read the entire book and post it. Post me reading the whole thing. Back. Adam reads aloud 30 pages worth of book. I don't know. <laughs> I haven't even done that with freedom yet. You'd have to calculate um, the value on that. Yeah. But uh, send me an email. I'll definitely take a look at it. And I'm, I'm obviously like more than, I mean, I, I want to be compensated for my time, you know, but if it's helpful of what we're doing, you know, if it's, if it's something that's like, it's, it's an easy read and really important. I'm more concerned about, you know, the integrity of my stream and not promoting something that's contrary to the message. I, I assume it's not. But, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely open to it. So, please, uh, send me an email. Smedley Butler writes, your barber missed the spot up front. Mm-hmm. Was that? Was I? I'm my barber. Uh, I cut my own hair. And I, this is my first night in tight for a while. It's a little sloppy. Um, but today, well, yesterday, so doing the, doing field work, I had my hat on, and it fucked up my hair so bad. I can't tell if I'm having a really good hair day or a really bad hair today with this little cowlick in front. And uh, I'll probably grow this all out just a little bit, so it's not not so much skin. Anyway, all right. Ladies and gentlemen, also join us all the way from Met Dakota, producer CJ. What's up, uh, Mr. Kokesh? How you doing today, sir? Ta-da! Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Yes, yeah, yeah. Lee McCharlie, CJ. Okay. How's it going? Uh, real quick, sir, I did want to say I know you had a busy weekend, so allow me just the quick liberty to tell you that there is a veto-proof majority of the city council saying they'll dismantle the police oh. department. So yes, they only we got yeah. Jim's got Jim's got another story here. That's the same story. No, no, does it from the Guardian? 
No, oh, mine was the sub- veto proof cancel. Yeah, yeah. So it's true. Yeah. They this is Huffington Post, oh, okay. but but the veto proof majority <laughs> in Minneapolis says they will dismantle the police. It's the same story basically, fundamentally. But yeah, so I mean, I'm sure we can get into that further. You know, tomorrow or whatnot is yeah. more. Yeah, yeah. So even even with this, thank you, CJ. So we are we are really close, actually. Now, so that that answers my question. We are actually, if this is going to happen, we're pretty close to taking that decisive step to make that happen. Right. Uh, a veto-proof city council majority says the city will move to a community-based public safety model, but what will that entail? Um, I now. That sounds really good, right? It's really, it's really tempting to be hopeful. This is where Adam, the cautious pessimist, steps in and goes, "Oh, your veto-proof majority? Well, guess what? They just got bullied by the police unions into being just barely less than that majority. Sorry, you know, like I, I'm just that. That's why I, I, I'm not, you know, I, if, if I." If they're already talking about how it would work, that's worth covering and getting into. We'll get into it tomorrow when I have it's not a, it's not an urgent headline, but when I have some time to digest it, we'll definitely come back to the story at some All point. All right, Thank yeah, you. sounds good, sir. And then uh, I just want to remind everybody you can reach me, producer at thefreedomline dot com. Don't uh, don't forget to uh, reach out to me if you're trying to get onto the show. I'm I'm also booking people for upcoming episodes. And then uh, I'll do what these guys forgot to do here real quick. Make sure to go to patreon.com yes, yes, and oh. join the Patreon. And, uh, you know, just for just 10 bucks a month, you can join this awesome backstage studio. Uh, I tend to uh, interact with the Patreons here. It's a quick way to get to Adam. we got a Patreon chat that's uh, pretty fun to be a part of. So other than that, sir, uh, that's all I've got for today. All right, and hey, everybody, I just wanted to have a chance to say hi to Sam for a while, who I, I got to spend so much time with last week, driving in and out of Phoenix and various medical facilities. Sam, duck down so they can see your face on camera and wave hi to everybody. Yeah, look at this. Look at that throwback stuff right there. All right, thank you, baby. All right. So one other big producer note, CJ, is that next week we are going to be moving the show up one hour earlier. Uh, so it, it, it's funny. Now it's like it's a, today's cold here in the mountains. It's a cold morning. Normally, <clears throat> by, by noon, and certainly in the coming months, we're going to be sweating. On, you're going to see it coming through this shirt. Uh, if, we don't, if we don't back up one hour but for a number of logistical things as well. So every day we're at least going to mention that and and put out some uh, some little promo um, over the weekend. As soon as as soon as our Friday show wraps, we'll put out a couple a uh, couple posts, some you know graphic you know meme promos that say uh, the new times. So it'll be nine to eleven starting next Monday, nine to eleven Pacific time. CJ, any other producer notes? You know, it's a, it's a team effort, sir. So I mean, if uh. But, uh, yeah, no, that's uh, all I really got for today. Uh, I just wanted to make sure, again, that if you're emailing me to get onto the show, uh, I, I, I do have to confirm with Adam as well that he's, he's you know, that we've got uh, that blocked in. But I wanted to make sure for tomorrow, I do believe, can I can I drop the ball on this one? We have scheduled for Dr. Joe Jorgensen to be on the show. Yeah. Yes. Awesome. So, Hell, yeah, this is happening tomorrow. Awesome. Tomorrow, big interview. And is, is Mr. Rufo rescheduled? He was one we had to get to uh, after missing last week. 
Uh, yeah, he got the link sent. He's in a work thing right now, and then hopefully by about 1 o'clock my time, uh, 1.15, he'll be in studio. So with that being said, I'll let you know when he's on there, sir. All right, excellent. We got another Libertarian Congressional candidate as a guest today, and another Super Chat for $20. Scott Kausland, the ultimate scavenger hunt free ebook. All right. You, Scott, if you're going to... If you're gonna pay so much money to be on the stream, you 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 probably ought to like put the title in here, make it make it a leg, or maybe like you can make sure that everybody pays attention to the whole show today. We'll have Scott dropping twenty dollars super chat every ten minutes, and if you put them all together, you can decode the message to find his ebook. I don't know. We'll see about that. But Scott, really looking forward to hearing from you and uh, and, and seeing what your book's about. All right, so jumping into the headlines, little perspective from theguardian.com by the numbers, U.S. police kill more in days than other countries do in years. The Guardian has built the most comprehensive database of U.S. police killings ever published. Compare our findings to those from U.K., Australia, Iceland, and beyond. And I'm, I'm reminded of that, I think it's a Dan Cummins bit, when he goes, you know, when you pay taxes, shouldn't it be like when you go to a store and they give you a receipt and they, they tell you what your money's being spent on? You know, I say, hey, look, you know, there's a lot going to defense, not a lot going to education, healthcare, maybe not too happy with that. But when, you know, like, like a normal business, you give them money, they, they give you an accounting of it, right? You some, some record. Well, with the government, it's not like that. You know, they, it's, it's like you never get a receipt. They just take your money and say, thanks, except without the thanks. And you would think right, that, that, that the, the U.S. government would have the best database of police killings. No, 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 the Guardian. You have to go to like, a British news organization to get a good database. I guess, real, and now the Washington Post has one. There, there, um, there are others in the U.S. <laughs> but, of course, it's not the government. Let me give you a receipt for how many of you we've killed. No, that's, that's not going to happen. And one of the things that is really important to keep track of in all of this is some of the bigger problems, you know, when we see with the statistics, you know, we, we see, well, it's black Americans this, white Americans this, and you go, uh, yeah, okay, is it? And there, there are a lot of people right now, you know, when, when you hear, like, Black Lives Matter, and again, I support 100% the core message if not most of the things that the movement is doing, but I support the core message. I support people being active with Black Lives Matter when they're doing good work because, in many ways, the system acts as if Black lives don't matter. And when you come out and you say, all lives matter, it's like, and you know, it, it, hey, guys, can you wear a mask? You know, coronavirus is going around. All diseases matter. Uh, yeah, okay. Um, you know, hey, there's, there's, a, there's a hurricane in, that just happened in Haiti. Can we get some disaster relief? Hey, all natural disasters matter. Like, yeah, that's how dumb you look 
going, all lives matter, when people go, well, hey, black lives matter, because they're making a legitimate point. Now, some people will point out and try to say, hey, look, black people are more violent. There's more black-on-black crime and black-on-white crime and white-on-white crime. And Yeah, okay, fine. You want to try to tease out statistics like that and say, well, maybe black people being murdered by police is a product How can anybody, with with any humanity and a sense of the history of what black Americans have gone through, say anything like that with a straight face? It's insane. It's, it's so, so insensitive. But there are bigger issues worth examining here. And it is important first to keep in mind that clearly there is a bias against black people in the United States. There are legacies of slavery and being disadvantaged. Now, even if you want to tease it out and go, well, look, uh, really white-on-white or black-on-white cop killing is a bigger... You know what? If you're still trying to break it down by race like that, I really don't care. Because here's the bigger problem. It's police brutality. It's the police state. And yes, it affects... And this is where I'm like, kind of with the All Lives Matter people, like, yeah, there's there is... There's a bigger problem that doesn't just affect black people. So let's work Let's work on all of it. But you don't have to say all lives matter as if to, like, discount black lives matter. Like, no, that, it's, it, it really sounds dumb. So scrolling down here, if you would get the story back up, CJ, there's there some, like, you know, and a lot of these are kind of, you know, apples and oranges type statistics, but... Bear with me. We're going to scroll through some of these infographics real quick here, these these big uh, number slides. Exactly. Thank you. And what you're going to get here is a sense of just how outsized American police violence and violence in general is. So first one, England and Wales population, 56.9 million versus the U.S. population, 316.1 million, so approximately six times the population. 55 fatal police shootings in the last 24 years in the U.S. 59 fatal police shootings in the first days, first 24 days of 2015. You go, holy shit. I'm going to do a little quick math, break this down. Let's let's even out the populations for proportionality here, right? So we take the U.S., and we divide it by six, and we say, okay, so there's ten fatal police shootings in, in 24 days. And then you go, well, that was in, in a population area the size of England and Wales in the U.S. You have ten in the first in the first month, and you're, we're comparing that. So over the last 24 years, you divide that to get it down to a year, you're talking about two per year. I mean, you can't, you break this into like two per year versus in the United States, 10 in a month. You still can't even get to a comparison. I mean, you have to go one level next, like two per year. How many is this in, in, in 12 months? In you know, times 12 with this, 720? I mean, it's, like, it's, it's 
a, like it's a phenomenon in the United States of death. This just doesn't exist in any other country. Uh, in first world countries, at least. There are others that certainly suffer worse violence in different ways. Uh, but let's go to the next graphic, please. Iceland. Now, this is cool because we're looking at two populations <coughs> that have a, that, that are similar in size. Iceland, population 323,000. Stockton, California, 298,000. So both about 300,000. In Iceland, how many fatal police shootings in the whole nation's 71 years of existence? One. 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 And they said, huh, let's not do that again. And they fixed it. Uh, surprise. Stockton. Three fatal police shootings in the first five months of 2015. Now, maybe a, a more accurate comparison would be, like, what's the average annual police shootings in, in Stockton, California, right? Or how many in the, in the last 71 years? But, like, let's, let's, be, let's say that First, this is a bad year. That, that three shootings, and that's really like three per year on average. Iceland would have to exist for 213 years to have as many shootings as Stockton has in five months. You see how this comparison, you just go, Something I don't want to trigger YouTube with. Really? Like, it's just... Ugh. Man, like, oh, wow. So just about this, behind the numbers, uh, a 2013 police shooting in Iceland drew international attention because it was the first of its kind. There had literally never been a fatal police shooting recorded there before two years ago. Iceland's official intentional homicide rate is so low that it does not register in World Bank data on intentional homicides per 100,000 people. For the U.S., the rate is 5 per 100,000. You ever get that sense like like we do here at the Garden of Freedom when shit's going crazy everywhere else, like, wow. I'm glad I live here while the world is burning around. I'm glad I've got my little island of sick, well, Iceland. <laughs> they got a big island with 300,000 people going, holy, the rest of the world is going to hell all the time. This is how Iceland has basically felt for the last 71 years, its entire existence, Iceland going, well, at least we've got things figured out here in the rest of the world. Maybe that maybe they'll learn from us eventually. But it's not just Iceland. To the next infographic, please, CJ. Germany, population 80 million versus U.S. population 316. 15 citizens of any race, armed or unarmed, fatally shot in two years from 2010 to 2011. To get over that number in the U.S., unarmed black men, shade Fatally shot by police in the first five months of 
Now, these numbers seem a little disconnected. Like, why would I even share this, right? Here's here. There are more unarmed black men shot by police in the U.S. in five months than total deadly shootings in Germany over two years. To the next one. Australia. Much smaller population. 23.1 million. Again, U.S. 316. 94 fatal police shootings between 92 and 2011. Remember, what is Australia? What is Australia? It is the country of Britain's rejects. Remember, was it the, the 19 sins or something? You commit these sins, we send you to Australia. The penal colony! It's like, and, and similar tragedies against the native population as we had in the United States still have today. And they have their shit together a lot better than the U.S. 94 fatal police shootings in 20 years from 92 to 2011. As opposed to in the United States, we had more than that. 97 fatal police shootings in just March of 2015. One month. Now, of course, the population is way higher. You know, multiply by 15. But that still gets you to a year and a half. 15 months. Insane. So, the next graphic, Canada. And you guys know how Canada got their name, right? They were pulling letters out of the hat, and one day it was C-A-N-A-D-A. I, hey, I can make jokes like this because I'm racist against Canadians. I mean, because I'm half Canadian, sorry. Um, Canada, population 35.2 million versus California, population 38.8 million. Okay, we're looking at comparable populations. For all of Canada, 25 police, fatal police shootings in a year. For California, 72 fatal police shootings in 2015. Is it just because it's cold up there? Going to Finland. Population, 5.4 million. Total number of bullets fired by police in 2013. Six. It's like Chris Rock. We don't need gun control. We need bullet control. You make bullets cost a thousand dollars. You're gonna hear threats like, "I would shoot you if I could afford it." I'm gonna put some bullets on layaway, and you better watch out. But yeah, how how hard is it to say? You know what? If we arm you and pay you as a police officer and you have to fire in the line, we're going to hold you accountable for pulling the trigger. This is the result. Six bullets in a whole year. Now, we, we talked about the UK earlier, and generally street police there are disarmed. They still have armed police for you know SWAT team type stuff, you know, hostage situations. Don't worry. The government did not disarm themselves in England. But, uh, it's not like there's blood in the streets. 
So like there's chaos. I mean, oh my god, they have some knife attacks. I'm not advocating for gun control. I'm advocating for government control. By contrast, what happens in the United States where you have a police state where police are able to fire their weapons haphazardly with no regard for safety standards, just trigger happy, like you know, like the Minneapolis case of uh, Justine Damon that we covered. Is you know the contrast to George Floyd, uh, Australian woman shot because a cop. Saw her run up to the police door, police car door, and just went up, up, and shot her in the chest. You know, what, the officers know it's in their head. Oh, I can fire, and if I said I felt threatened, I'm going to be okay. So, Pasco, Washington, population sixty-seven thousand five hundred ninety-nine, seventeen bullets fired in the fatal shooting of Antonio Zambrano Montes who was killed in February by officers responding to reports that he was throwing rocks at cars. 17 shots were fired. Because this was caught on video, that's why we know this story. I mean, think of how many of these kinds of incidents in America just don't get caught on video. 17 shots fired, according to police, five or six struck the victim. And it's a, a problem with you know, violence as a whole. But it really is. Who takes the lead? My population, it's the police in the United States. They have a police state. It's out of control. And you can parse the statistics really any way you want. It's racist against white people. It's racist against black people. It's racist against yellow people. It's racist against purple people. Doesn't matter. This is a problem that is unique to America in the way that it is. There are other countries, yes, that have similar problems, I know. But the viciousness, the way that it is out of control in the United States, at very least, we owe it to ourselves to look around the rest of the world and be like, hmm, how are we screwing this up so badly compared to the rest of y'all? We got another super chat jumping in here from Ben Heckman joining us from Philadelphia, or from Pennsylvania. I forget what city he's in. Thank you, Ben. Two ninety nine hashtag unfund the police. Is that is that the dominant one? I thought it was defund. Is it unfund the police now? Uh, I, this was a cool little story I saw yesterday that Black Lives Matter protesters were spray painting uh, in huge yellow letters, not spray painting, actually painting out rollers with rollers. On the street in New York, defund the police. I hope it stays for a long time. From theweek.com, another scary police state story around the George Floyd protests slash riots in the wake of or in the midst of the coronavirus protests. Federal police with no badges or nameplates are patrolling Washington, D.C. Some are Prison riot guards. A veritable alphabet soup of federal law enforcement has been deployed in Washington, D.C. amid large peaceful protests against racial injustice and police brutality and adjacent acts of vandalism. FBI, DEA, DHS, ICE, CBP, TSA, plus the Secret Service, U.S. Marshals, U.S. Park Police, National Guard, Military Police, and Active Duty Troops. 
but, quote, Washington residents have also been confronted with a number of other heavily armed law enforcement officers who share an unexpected characteristic. Neither their affiliation nor their personal identities are discernible, the Washington Post reports. We have a couple pictures here, and you can see these cops lined up. And you go, who are these people? They're in riot gear, full riot gear. Uh, we've got some photos from Twitter, from Washington Post. you got the uh, commando guy there in the next photo. He's got the Under Armour shirt on. And look at this. This is like your tech. You know, when when I see something like this, you know, it's it's, of course, you go to the obvious issues. But a part of me goes, how much did this jerk's commando suit cost U.S. taxpayers? That helmet, a few hundred dollars. He's got a, a radio piece on, built by the, not the lowest bidder, but the most corrupt one. That's how it works in the defense industry these days, right? Probably a few hundred dollars just for that earpiece. Tactical vest, if it's got plates in it, it's at least a few hundred dollars. All the magazines, weaponry, communications gear, sidearms, clothing. Now, if you look down in that photo, the one that CJ's got up right now, you see the guys where you can see on the on the, on the the lower right side of that photo, see they have those big black bags strapped on their left thighs? I think those are gas mask bags. We carried similar ones in the Marines, and those aren't cheap. And, and you go, okay, there's Adam, yeah, why are you, they're spending money, why are you complaining that they're spending money when they're sending <coughs> anonymous armed troops on American city streets. Well, really, again, what does this all come down to? The rich get richer, the poor get poor. When I see this, I don't go, ah, there's another $100 of military gear. There's, ah, damn it, there's, no, I go, oh, there's one more kid going to bed hungry in America. There's one more family that can't afford a life-saving operation for their children. Now, that's one more small business going under. That's you know, uh, uh, that much reduction in quality of life, not just with what they're doing, but there is something truly scary about this, really just on the surface, that should be fought. Why did we ever allow this to happen in the first place? I mean, if anything, oh, you have a right to bear arms. Yeah, right. Uh, do you have a right to, you know, hide your, your identity? Yeah, but do you have a right to avoid responsibility? No, of course not. And as an individual citizen, can you go out and we see this at a lot of these protests. We see the Boog Boys coming out, the Bujahideen of the Boogaloo, the Big Igloo. We see them coming out armed, similar to the cops, right? They don't have to wear name tags. They're not with any agency. The Boogaloo Boys is not an official government-sponsored law enforcement agency, in case you were wondering. And, you know, they, they absolutely have that right to go out masked and armed. But if you shoot somebody, society kind of has a right to, to stop you and identify you and force you to take responsibility for that action, to unmask you and to disarm you. Now, I, I think disarming the police would be just as critical as defunding them, and if we could start with that, I'd be very happy. But this is something else, that you can wear a gun on the street in the name of government and say, I work for the people. 
and not identify yourself, that's a whole other scary level of government criminality. And as the New York City Police Commissioner William Bratton, even in this, you know, having a problem, like if, and if you're a if you're a street cop who believes that you're a public servant, and you put on the uniform and a badge and a gun every day in good faith, even if you're doing a bad thing by being a cop and enforcing, but if you do that in good faith, and you you're you're, you're you might be a bastard, you know, ACAB, all cops are bastards because they're, they're all bastardized, they're all inherently corrupt by being cops. But maybe you're, you're, you're at least one of the well-intentioned ones. There's no such thing as a really... Is there a good cop? You know, I try to make this exception. You know, maybe in a small town where you know you're directly accountable to the people and, you, you know, only enforce crimes with victims. Ah, okay. Maybe. Maybe. There... And this is, this is like a... T- a tenth of a percent of police in America at most are even eligible to be a good cop by the, the system that they're in. But if you're a well-intentioned cop and you see other cops doing bad shit, you at least go, hey, hey, let me keep my, my good cop racket going here. Don't, don't make me, don't look, don't make all cops look totally evil because that's going to be bad for my job. So, Bratton said, quote, the idea that the federal government is putting law enforcement personnel on the line without appropriate designation of agency name, etc., that's a direct contradiction of the oversight that they've been providing for many years to local police and demanding in all of their various monitorships and accreditation. If those officers engage in any type of misbehavior during the time that they are there representing the federal government, how are you to identify them? Are you, are you saying that they're there are cops in the streets who can engage in misbehavior without accountability. Shocking, right? Now, apparently when you ask them who they're with, they just say Department of Justice. And some of them have been caught actually with insignia. Um, and they are federal prison riot control police. Some of them, that's who they're bringing out. So problematic, as the SJWs would say. All right, do we have our guests queued up, CJ? All right, is this Mike Rufo? What's going on, Adam? How are you? Awesome. All right, well, ladies and gentlemen, please help me welcome Mike Rufo to the stage here. He is running for Congress as a libertarian. Excited to lend him this platform, bring him on as a guest, and promote his campaign. So, Mike, give us the background. Tell us about yourself and why you decided to run. Well, I, I decided to run because I had enough, right? As many of us had, you know, there was a uh, there was a moment in 2016 when Trump was clearly starting to become the front runner in the Republican Party, and having been a an old Ron Paul supporter and wanting to really hope and pray that the Ron Paul movement could stay alive in the Republican Party. I stuck around. And, uh, you know, I wasn't active. I wasn't an activist. I wasn't doing things on the street. But I had had enough, and I threw my hands in the air. And I said, I'm done. I found the Libertarian Party, got involved, helped out with the Pete Warman campaign in, in, in for governor in 2017. And in 2018, I said, I'm going to throw my hat in a ring. I ran for Congress in this district in 2018. Um connected with a ton of people, really got the message out there, uh, helped Murray Sabrin with his Senate campaign that year, 
And then, you know, this year it came up. They asked me if I was going to do it again. I was asked to run for Senate. I said I can't afford to do a statewide run. It would be it would be a bad decision on my part to do so. There's no Wait, way. I- hold, on, hold on a second, Mike. You can't figure out a way to go broke running for Congress, really? You can only go broke running for Senate as a libertarian? It's, it's, it's a lot easier to go broke running for Senate than it is for Congress. It's a smaller area. It's a much smaller area, you know? I don't, hey, Mike, when I ran for Congress, it was New Mexico's third district, the whole <laughs> northern third of the state, yeah. bigger than the entire state of Pennsylvania. What's your district? How big is it? My district is maybe 30 miles wide by 20 miles north and south. It's, it's, it's a local district. It's really – it's not huge. It's Jersey. So maybe it's like one one town in, in, in New Mexico. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> so like it, it's from Trenton to Belmar and then from um, the Marlboro area down to about Lakehurst where the air base is. Uh, well, yeah. The joint base now. Um, so it is worth pointing out because I, I encourage everybody to run for office as a libertarian. If you see an opportunity, even if it's a paper campaign where all you do is buy your paperwork and then you get to maybe be in a debate, maybe do some interviews, put up a website, you know, at very least you're going to get some, you know, local media coverage. Do it. Jump up on the free platform and enjoy it. With, and it's like, how many, it, it, it drives me nuts, and Mike, please let me know what you think about this as, as, as a way of encouraging more people to to, to, uh, to to run, because how many libertarians do we have on social media, like furiously posting away every day, right, we need to get people to read my stuff, we need people to understand my ideas, we need people to listen to me, we just need everybody to hear me, and then the world would be better and America would be fixed if we could just listen to the libertarians. And there's this place where there's like, there's an empty chair on the stage with a big L on it, and it doesn't stand for loser. It stands for libertarian. You just go sit up there, and, hey, now you're talking to a bunch of people that you never talked to before. And it's like, yeah, the, it, the overhead is not that much. So, Mike, given, given that perspective, you know, what are your thoughts for someone you know, considering running as a libertarian for the first if time? Even, if you're even considering it, just do it. You know, that Nike campaign of just do it is the most amazing campaign of all time because when something needs to get done, the answer is simple. You know, no, it's not. No, it's not. Screw Nike. Screw that corporate. Screw that corporate. That is a corrupt corporation. They stole a phrase and so brilliantly attached their brand to just do it. That's like if they if they change their slogan to yes, and every time we said yes, we had to be like, yes, Nike. They're like, no, no, you can't brand that. How do they brand just do it? That's, that's like such a important phrase. Can we say just do it without saying Nike for the rest of human history? Probably not. No, no, good for them. <laughs> but no, seriously, just do it. I, I mean, it, it, there's nothing to it. I mean, if, if nine times out of ten, that person is a keyboard warrior already as it is. And they know what they're saying and they know what they're talking about. It's uncomfortable. Life is uncomfortable. You get out there, put your name out there, talk about the topics because people want to hear it. And that's the one thing I find running for, for office is that you get in front of a group of people, they genuinely have questions. They genuinely want to know, what do you stand for? What are we doing? How does this work? What, well, if that happens, what's going to go this way? And you just have the conversation with them. And then what'll ha- there's going to come this moment when you're running for office. When somebody's going to walk up to you when you get off the stage or when you're done addressing the crowd, and they're going to pull you to the side, and they're going to be like, that was awesome. I'm really glad you said what you said. How do I find out more about you, and how do I find out more about the Libertarian yes. Party? And that yes. 
That right there is worth its weight in gold. The moment that happens, you've won your campaign. Yeah. You have because you've reached somebody, and then they're going to go tell ten people themselves. And and, mm-hmm. and that's how it works. So if you're thinking about doing it, just do it because it's really all that needs to happen. Awesome. So, Mike, who are you running against? What are the issues in your district? All right. So I'm running against a 38-year incumbent in Chris Smith. Um, he's Mr. Quiet. He, he flies under the radar. He avoids all the controversial topics. He is the, he was the lone Republican before Van Drew switched back, switched to the Republicans after using the Democrats to get elected, um, in 2018. He, uh, he's, so, just, so let me, so let me, this is, this is like a gerrymandered Republican district within the state of New Jersey yes. where they, 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 they kind of, they want to isolate all of their Republicans yes. so that the rest of the seats in the state can go Democrat, right? Yeah, and in the South, typically, the South half of New Jersey, they typically do go Republican. Um, they had a very, uh, the Republicans had a very um, polarizing person running the district that they that the Democrats won. So it, that's that may swing back Republican, but this district is very gerrymandered because it borders up against Trenton and Camden and Burlington and a lot of some there, and it, it, it seems to carefully cut out that blue corridor that comes down to New Jersey Turnpike on the western side of the state. Yeah. Um, and but he's you know he, he's been there forever. He's not he was he ran in '78 as a Democrat, lost, came back in '80 as a Republican, and he's been there ever since. This will be 40 years if he wins again this year. And uh, he's just soft. He's ranked the number five bipartisan congressman, which just means he's the fifth best at screwing everybody. You know what I mean? He's just he knows how to spend the most money, when to spend it, and he, he doesn't talk out on, on controversial things. He's talk he, he's worried about the, the Hong Kong protesters right now and. I understand and was worried about them too, but right now we've got protesters getting gassed and beaten and, and knocked out, and he hasn't said a word about it. So I, I don't understand. You know, you got, you got Justin Amash with his qual- and, and qualified immunity, and Chris Smith is silent. He's weak on guns. He, he, he supports the bump stock bans. He supports the magazine restrictions. He's not an advocate for the Second Amendment whatsoever, and he votes for every po- every big spending bill that comes across his his little vote card. Yeah, so I, I want to point out just what, how this makes it an extra fun race for a libertarian to run. And, you know, again, for my audience, encouraging everybody to look for these kinds of opportunities <clears throat> based on where you live. You know, maybe there's a, a mayor's race or a city council or a county supervisor race that <clears throat> gives you a great warm-up. I think running for Congress you know, like we should have a really, we should have a libertarian running for Congress in every single district in America. There's not a single one that it's not at least worth one activist putting in the effort to run a you know, serious paper campaign, right? As in, you put up a website, you file, and you know, you check your email, and, and you pursue interviews and and speaking forum opportunities, and, and get out and, and kind of do that. Um, but in your race in particular. When you have a 38-year incumbent, every two years they have to trot them out in public and, you know, and, and go, you still want to vote for this guy? And I would bet that the Democrats run someone every year, but it's not a serious campaign. It's probably less serious than a lot of libertarian campaigns, right? It's kind of their, their sacrificial lamb just to have a Democrat on the ballot. In 2018, they went hard at him because of the whole blue wolf, the whole blue wave thing, and they uh, didn't think that the gentleman that they had put up, Josh Welly, was uh, capable of doing the job. Um, it's just, it, 
Chris Smith is it, 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 he's got his perfect little nook. He gets sixty to fifty eight to sixty percent of the vote every two years. And his, what was what was the number in eighteen? What, what did he win with last year? The last time, I want to say he had fifty five percent, and Willie had fifty, and had Willie had forty four. That's actually you got closer than than I would have expected from the impression you gave. But but that was their that was the big that was with a huge Democrat effort to unseat an incumbent. So normally in a race like that, and if it was more lopsided, and by the way, if you have an incumbent consistently getting reelected with fifty five percent of the vote, you go that's a safe seat. Yeah, that's all they have to do to make it safe because it's it, it's such a a taut system in so many ways. They don't have to like what what are the odds? that suddenly you're going to get 5% lower voting for Republicans in a district from one cycle. It's pretty low. Those, I mean, these things are very consistent from cycle to cycle. But if you had a case where, like, you know, the incumbent was blowing it out with, like, you know, 60-plus percent or even 70% as in some places, you know, they don't the, – the, the opposition party doesn't even bother to run a serious race. And when they go, you still want to vote for this guy? You know, you can be the one going, I don't, I don't, and you can make a lot of noise and have a lot of fun, even, like, if you have no serious chance of winning, but if you're running against someone who is, like, there are a lot of unopposed races. Yes. There, I, you know, and, and what I was getting at is that it's de facto unopposed when the opposition party isn't running a commensurately serious, uh, proportionately serious campaign against the incumbent, and there's a media vacuum there that's even more opportune, more ripe for taking advantage of. So um, how's it going with, with media? So to give me a timeline of your campaign for 2020, announcement, fundraising, website, things like that, and, and how's it going with media outreach and, and events for you? So the media in Jersey pretty much blocks us out. It's, I, what does your shirt say, by the way? It's actually just media, as all I can read. Effective devil in America. Yep. <laughs> I got it from Maj. Um, <laughs> but uh, the media in, in Jersey, they, we, we send out press releases constantly. I'll, I'll write a thing here and there, and it, it doesn't get put out. It, it, nobody picks it up. It's very rare they run it. Um, I'm figuring once the primaries finish up, I'll get my couple of paragraphs here and there as I did in 2018. Uh, the primaries in New Jersey are, have been pushed to July 7th. They were supposed to be t- tomorrow, um, but everything got pushed to July 7th. So uh, we're working on signatures. I'm almost done with my collecting my signatures. We announced I, everybody in the party in New Jersey knew I was running for 2020 last year. Um, the formal announcement came in March. Yeah, about that. Yeah, about that. Let me just say one thing. For people who are considering running as libertarians, talk to your state chair that this is a big part of their job is organizing major races and if you go hey I'm, i i want to run a paper campaign and i want to talk about libertarian ideas wh- wh- ask them you know what should i run for talk to your county chair but your state chair first because i think the biggest gap among libertarian candidates is u.s congress for house that we don't have someone running for every seat in, in the, and you don't even have to live in your district by the way as long as you live in the state in most states because the, because the districts have been so manipulated. If you live just outside and you want to represent this community, anyway, they let you run uh, in, in any district in your state. And if you can coordinate that, it's really easy. They'll tell you, hey, we don't have anybody running for Senate this year. Why don't you run for Senate? Hey, we don't have anybody running for you know CD3 this year, run, run in that district. Or, you know, we don't, there's a big mayor's, like, 
hey, we have an opportunity with a mayor running unopposed for re-election. There's the opportunity. Coordinate with your state or county party. State party first. But, yeah, get involved that way. Sorry, back to you, Mike. No, that's that's fine. I mean, and that's that's really how it works. I, I've, I've fielded probably, in the last two months, I've probably fielded four or five people emails asking, hey, how do I run? What do I do? I point yes. to the questionnaire, and then we do it. Yeah, the last part of that thought, I'm sorry, Mike, is, is let's avoid libertarian primaries on, you know, anything other than president and vice president, yes. right? It, it, and and I've, I've been to, I, I would bet I've been to, more Libertarian Party state conventions than almost anybody alive today. Maybe, maybe there are like a dozen people who are like party actors who've been around for decades who have me beat. But, you know, not, not very many. And most of them don't have primaries. And just so you know, the primaries are very polite affairs. You know, you show up at, at, at your weekend state convention. Hey, there are two of you who want to run for Senate. All right, you got... 15 minutes each, convince us that you can run the better cam- campaign, people there vote. All right, you're going to be our nominee for for, for governor or for se- – like occasionally you see contested libertarian primaries for governor, sometimes for Senate when there's like a big hot race and it's a, it's, it's a significant PR opportunity. You might have two libertarians running, but, but it, why not, you know, split up. You know, don't, don't, don't overlap your efforts and state parties can do a good job uh, – you know, coordinating that. But hey, if, if two of you, if you, like, if Jim and I really wanted to run for Senate here in Arizona, we're like, hey, man, I really want, you really want to run? All right, well, let's see who can, you know, make, if we can't convince each other, well, we're both going to go into the state convention and make the best case that we should be the nominee. And if not, Jim, I, I hope that you run for Congress or governor, you know, and it's, it's, it's it, that's how these conversations happen. It's, it's really easy. Yeah, and then it typically does work that way. And we've had plenty, a lot of people come in when there has been a few, uh, you know, seats that, you know, positions that were opposed. It was, hey, well, if I don't get it, I'm going to do this instead. So they all had their backup plan coming into it. So, I mean, it is, it's that easy. Um, as far as everybody knew that I was running, we, we, we announced it back then. My website, I, I basically, not for nothing, I, I left my website alone from 2018, and really I've carried it over to 2020. I've just rebranded it, Run Rufo 2020. I ran for the same seat. There, there it is right there. Um, there. There is a really nice donate button somewhere on there, so if anybody wants to, you know, take a look. And I think it's down a little bit there on the bottom left, right there in the middle. Yep, you click on that, you fill it out, we get a couple of bucks, and we throw some more money our way so that we can make Christmas know that we exist and, and – and, Shift some policy-making decisions. Um, you know, it, it's we're starting our fundraising now. I've really been focused on signatures because the primary is in July, so i got to get my signatures turned in by July. That's the most important thing. That's the biggest focus because if we're not on the ballot, it doesn't matter how much we fundraise. Um, I need money to get on the ballot, though, so I can get out and send out the emails and everything, so it doesn't take nearly as much. Um, but we're, we're going to be there no matter what. I mean, like I said, I'm almost at my, my signature count. It's, it, I'm going to be there, and I'm going to be a force to be reckoned with this year. You know, I, I want to get 5% of the vote this year. You know, do I want to win? Absolutely. And if it starts to snowball, I'm going to do it. Don't get me wrong. You know, I'm, I'm going to make every case I have to to make sure that everybody knows I need to be the one that be in this seat to make sure that everyone has the best representative to, to, to promote freedom across the country because, you know, we need to make sure that's my Facebook page. By the way, anybody, you can find me on social media at – Rufo for Congress, right there. That same thing on all social media, Instagrams, um, Twitter, and Facebook. Um, yeah, w- listen, I want to raise $20,000, get 5%. 
and make and make and make a mark in the race. In 2018, I got the Democrat to say that he believes in states' rights when he was on stage before they started screaming about states' rights. Because I continually pivot to the same issue of localizing government and why is why does Nancy Pelosi have a say in how we clean up the Jersey Shore, or why does why does Mitch McConnell have a say in what we're doing with with the with our money for our defense in New Jersey? You know, it's it's it, that, that's my constant message. And I'm, Driving home localization and making the community stronger because that's that's the right that's the proper role, right? Yeah. I knew you'd like that one. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, thank you, Mike. No, and I, I really appreciate seeing what I have been advocating for the last two years with the presidential campaign about localization as a messaging and policy strategy that really works for libertarian candidates. I'm glad you're applying that with success there, even just rhetorically to say, why should they do it instead of us here in the community? Like, if we're the only party, because to me that's an inherent implication of liberty. Localization is an implication of libertarianism because it is statism that uses force to concentrate power. Yes, you can have voluntary global conglomerates, sure. But that that's unjust power concentrated that comes from government, that comes from the old parties, that comes from status policy. If you just apply libertarianism at the at the level you're talking about federally, you're talking about localization, saying make it happen. And if we're the only party saying that, I think we start winning races. So, Mike, you know, thank you so much for joining us today. Any final thoughts or plugs you want to get in here? Listen, everybody, you know, there's been a lot of for the libertarian people in the libertarian party that are watching. There's been a lot of infighting. Um, we got to put that aside. We have the best presidential ticket we probably could have asked for with the with the entire party being represented. We have Spike as our VP. We have Joe, who is more radical than I realized she was, um, oh, yeah. on the top of the ticket. And it, every corner of this party should be happy with this ticket, from the radicals because Spike is there and from the prags because they endorse Joe. It, 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 this, is, this is the ticket we should have the most volunteers coming back to the party for. This is the ticket that should be bringing the most new membership. And honestly, I think this ticket's going to get more votes than Gary Johnson did. So we got to push that home. That's going to help. Yeah. All of the down-ballot candidates, that's going to help me. That's going to help the guy running for auditor. That's going to help the gal running for, for board of ed. Everybody that's going to have the libertarian name next to their name is going to be successful if we can focus and come together, get over all the drama. I don't care who you like and who you don't like. Let's all love Joe and Spike and get together to make sure the Libertarian Party succeeds this year. Absolutely beautiful. Well said, Mike. And one last thought I have to add on to this conversation is that you're not ready to run in 2020 or if you don't have an opportunity to run that you're comfortable with volunteer for another campaign do you do it locally great do you do it virtually with anybody anywhere in the country or really any libertarian anywhere in the world and if you take that first step and you see how easy it can be and by the way you can make it as hard as you want for yourself but it can be how easy it can be to be a libertarian candidate who's taken seriously enough to get your voice out there and take advantage of this platform and this MTC, you can really be a huge amplifier. Donate if you can donate, but if you can, really donating time and getting involved, helping someone like Mike get a few interviews in local papers, local blogs, podcasts, getting him in, helping him coordinate his schedule to go to 
you know, Rotary Club and League of Women Voters events where they're just going to invite anybody who's on the ballot can come and talk for five minutes, help him find those events, get his message out. He's primed. He's ready as a volunteer for his campaign or like hundreds, if not thousands of libertarians across the country. And so we're at hundreds. I think, I don't know if we're at thousands yet of campaigns as serious as yours, Mike. Definitely at thousands of libertarian candidates across the country. Probably just a few hundred that are as serious as Mike right now or more. But find one, get involved, volunteer, and that's going to set you up for your own success later on and help build the movement. So, Mike, thank you so much for joining us today. And finally, let me just say, again, I, I appreciate your flexibility and the timing and scheduling this. Obviously, we had some logistical challenges. But as a candidate, I'm sure you're more than familiar with the phenomenon. Absolutely. And Adam, thank you for having me on, man. I really do appreciate it. It was well worth all the struggle getting on. Not a big deal at all, brother. Thank you very much. All right. From neat, well, actually, before we go back to the headlines, because we still have a lot we want to cover today, and I, I got some cool stuff stacked up here. Any any hot comments? Any any more super chats? Uh, I got a couple not super chats. The one clarification of that twenty dollars super chat you got from Scott Kuslin, the ultimate scavenger hunt is the title. Oh, so there you go. It's a free ebook. <laughs> <laughs> What a funny misreading on my part! You Holy shit! Had something else running through your brain. To I just like right away. I'm like a scavenger. scavenger. I'm like, no, that, was it not? Did he miss up? Did he mess up the capitalization? Did I miss it? Hold on, put that back on on screen. CJ. Yeah, there's no capitalization. That, ah, see, yeah, no, I read it right. All right, the ultimate scavenger on a journey from fear to trust. From is it? Scott Kousland or Kousland? Kousland. Awesome. Well, now we got it up on screen. There's your $20 promo. Yeah, promo. And uh, we'll, we'll put the link in the notes as well. So, Very cool. <clears throat> to needtoknow.news, J.P. Morgan's Diamond admits Fed liquidity is propping up stocks. It's one of the things, like, I told you it's true. We do. Maybe it's maybe – if you hear it from Jamie Dimon, maybe you'll believe it. Because this is, this is one of the bad guys. At least one of the biggest profiteers of our corrupt economic system. J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon acknowledged that the stock market is rising only because the Fed is using taxpayer dollars to save large companies. He said the Fed's liquidity bringing out the bazooka is propping up stock prices as well as other asset classes. That may sound like a good idea, but these bailouts are rewarding bad behavior by banks and their favored businesses, and it is creating massive debt that will destroy the nation. And it's like, wait, we're finally hearing this from Jamie Dimon. I wonder, I wonder what his motivation is. Do you think about it like, did he suddenly grow a conscience? He's pointing out bad behavior. No, no, no. This is a guy going, well, my, my slice of the pie might be a little smaller here. You're just because like I've been working for my corrupt slice of the pie, I've been I've been really actively manipulating financial markets and getting bailed out and special favors from from government banks and all about these people just come in and with coronavirus they get all this money and it's you know it's bad behavior by banks and they, you've been a favored business doing bad behavior based around the government system of massive debt for years, Jamie. Now you're calling this out? Okay. J.P. Morgan 
CEO Jamie Dimon told the Deutsche Bank Global Financial Services Conference attendees virtually that he sees a good chance of a fairly rapid economic recovery and is hoping things pick up in three Q third quarter. After what will be weak GDP this quarter, quote, I give it some pretty good odds. The government has been very responsive. The Federal Reserve has been very responsive. Large companies have a huge wherewithal. Hopefully we'll keep the smaller ones alive long enough that most of them get back into business. Do you, do you hear how he's talking about, like, this, this, these are your, your true elites, the economic financial elites going, well, you know, these small businesses, they're, they're just like, they're like branches on a tree. And if we have to prune some of them so that the tree can grow and everybody's okay, then it's okay. You know, if they survive, hopefully we'll keep them alive long enough. They can keep supporting the bigger... No. Not a legitimate analogy. I mean, if you want to think of society as a tree, small businesses are the roots that, that, that support the whole thing growing. While the all-seeing CEO warned that J.P. Morgan is prepared for a scenario where recovery is slower, he implicitly pointed out that for now there's nothing to fear but fear itself because this is bringing on the bazooka. Like, really? He's calling this the bazooka and saying that essentially it's a good thing even though it's rewarding bad behavior. He's looking for a quick recovery. And when J.P. Diamond, or Jamie Diamond, J.P. Morgan's CEO, says, you know, this is going to be good for the recovery, what he means is for other members of the economic superclass. And that that's the recovery that he's looking for. And in other economic news from NPR.org, millions, <clears throat> millions, this is, by the way, this is from five days ago. I've been wanting to cover this for a while, and it's been hanging around on my browser. This is worth getting into. Millions of Americans skip payments as tidal wave of defaults and evictions looms. And I really want to give our audience a sense beyond yourselves, ourselves, in looking at this economic crisis to see what other people are doing and feel better about yourself. Because a lot of us go, oh, shit. My economic situation sucks. I'm struggling. Well, uh, there's this abstract idea things are bad for everybody else. Oh, shit, I can't pay my bills. I'm a loser. And a lot of people are struggling like that right now. If you didn't get your government checks, if you're not on unemployment or some other benefit system, things are going to be really tough. So Americans are skipping payments on mortgages, auto loans, and other bills. Normally that could mean massive foreclosures, evictions, car repossessions, and people's credit getting destroyed. But much of that has been put on pause. Help from Congress and leniency from lenders have kept impending financial disaster at bay for millions of people. But they that may not last for long. The problem is that these efforts aim to create a financial bridge to the future for the people who've lost their income in the pandemic. But the bridge is only half built. For one thing, the help still isn't reaching many people who need it. And, you know, I, I love these kind of silly analogies. These are like feel-good ones. We just, we haven't finished building the bridge to the new post-corona economy. It was like, no, 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 you were, it's like you were walking along a bridge and government smashed down and said, oh, maybe we'll let you across. 
Maybe we'll throw you, well, we'll throw some of you a lifeline and you can come across. The rest of you can just drown. Says Jonathan Baird of Bruce in Tennessee, my wife has filed certified every week for her employment for 10 weeks now, and they have done nothing. We've struggled. Baird is a disabled veteran, not injured in wartime who gets a small disability pension when the pandemic hit. His wife lost her job as a home health aide. That was most of their income. And like many other contract workers, she has run into long delays trying to collect unemployment. Meanwhile, Baird says his mortgage company told him that he didn't qualify for a federal program to postpone payments. Whoops. Many homeowners have been given wrong or misleading information from lenders about that, and it appears that is what happened in Baird's case. Try to get a break for his pickup, for his Ford payments as well. When I contacted them, they told me there was nothing they could do, just basically make your payment or suffer the late fees. He says the call center worker told him that he didn't qualify for any help because he was late on a car payment last year. Punish those hurting the most, right? When NPR contacted Ford, the company said that is not its policy. After reviewing the case, the company is now letting Baird skip his next car payment, which he says is a big help. Not really. Yeah, just just pushing it off, kicking the can down the road, delaying the... I mean, it'd be one thing if they forgave all the payments right now and said, hey, if you're out of work as a corona, you can show that you're out of work as a corona. Skip it. They can't do that, though. Because the lending system is so fragile. Right? If they did that, if they just said, yeah, we're just going to not collect payments for three months. Or we give you credit as if they were paid. The cascading effects from that, I don't want to say they'd be worse, because they'd be worse for the financial elites than everybody else. But we don't have, we don't even have like, really, the capability of the system set up to just be like, yeah, we'll just put everything on pause for three months. We're paycheck to paycheck like most people, he says. And when you take away that paycheck, especially for this length of time, we have to make the decision of vehicle or food. Now, I don't want to take this opportunity to to point fingers at anybody in my audience. Don't be paycheck to paycheck. It's not worth it. It's just not smart. It's not worth the risk. Don't don't be paycheck to paycheck. Now, but Adam, we're struggling like we can't pay. Make the adjustment. Get some savings. You go, but well, I... I How good is your quality of life? Why risk it? Why not just lower your monthly expenditures by 10, 20% and find a way to get some kind of economic security cushioning? First thing, get a pile of metals. What is it? How many Americans can't afford a $400 emergency bill if you said now you have $400? You just couldn't afford it? That was, that was the market. There was some survey. Last year, you go, yeah, but look it up for me, Jim, while we're doing this segment, please. How could you put yourself in that position? Now, I'm not rich, but I'm not paycheck to paycheck. 
I'm comfortable here. I've got, you know, a, a, enough cushion that I could, if, if I liquidated my metals, I could live for a month. You know, have some diversity in your, in your, in your holdings. What was this? 40% of Americans. Oh, oh, let me read this. This is from abcnews.go.com. Almost 40% of American adults wouldn't be able to cover a $400 emergency with cash, savings, or a credit card charge that they could quickly pay off. And right now, like, credit cards are not flowing. People are maxed out. It's a bad time. And I don't say this to say, like, this isn't, like, financial advice. This is, like, life advice. So you get you got your, uh, you know, maybe $1,000 cushion, 400 I You can put away four hundred. How, how much, how much peace, this is what you're buying. Is peace of mind. How much peace of mind do you have knowing that, like, if you have $400 of silver just sitting, you know, hidden somewhere in the house, in your apartment? Next, pay off your car. Own your car. Own, own a way to get around. Like, car repos, like, I mean, it, it doesn't happen very often. But if you know, hey, you don't pay your your you don't make car payments. This is why we have a government managed system of keeping track of vehicles with bins and license plates and, and all sorts of law enforcement tangled up in this. Your car is going to get repossessed. Why, why do that? Like why 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 drive a car that your bank owns? Oh, but I got a nice new car with fancy buttons and all. It's all clean and, and nice and pretty. How much more peace of mind do you have when you go, no, car payment is not a bill I have to worry about anymore. And then the next thing is own your home. And you go, Adam, I can't own a home. This thing's $300,000. I'm on a 30-year mortgage. I've got 15% of it paid off. Are you kidding? How you want me to come up with the other 250000 something dollars and pay off my home? Are you cr- No. No. That's not what I'm saying. No. But how much better is your quality of life living in a modern manufactured stick-frame home that costs money to maintain, that costs a lot of money to heat and cool, how much better is it than living on a few acres with a with an RV, all set up and comfortable? Because you can do that for for less than the equity in your house, probably. If you're if you're the average American homeowner, and you even you know, you know $120,000. Let's go to the lower end of things, right? Let's say say you own a hundred thousand dollar home. You got twenty thousand dollars worth of equity, and I don't know what the average is, but you know, I've, I've start out with some. What do you mean? Pay ten percent down on a house like that, and yeah, you're paying it. Kind of credit, yeah. yeah, something like that. I've never gone through this myself. I've looked at it and was like, I don't want to do that. Do you want to live in a house owned by a bank, where you're a slave to the bank, where you really—that's what you have to do. You have you have to work, or you're homeless. How the hell did we let ourselves fall into this situation where this is what the average American is dealing with? 
take the equity out of your house, make the leap to living rurally and owning something. Maybe build slowly like we are here. When you get back to that dream home in, I don't know, five to ten years, and then you own it all free and clear, and in the meantime, you live stress-free. And you weren't a slave. Like, what's... Really, how much better is your quality of life living in a shitty apartment, paying rent, versus living rural in an RV? Just as one possibility. Or get a cabin. Build a cabin. I mean, you can build a comfortable cabin for what? Five grand? You get these little prefab cabin structures for $3,000. You get 2000 left over to pimp it out and build out your systems and insulate it and customize it and all that. It's like, why? This is dumb. What most Americans are doing, the way that they are living financially, is dumb. And it's statist. They are supporting the system that is keeping them down by their lifestyle, just living like this. Whereas you can escape. And it's, it's not, you can escape easily. It's, this is already easy. It's like saying, well, you can cure this disease relatively easily. It's the cure. Take the cure. Cure the disease. Get, uh, the, but yeah, it's easy. It's, it's not a hard medicine to swallow. Get dirty. Have, have a little dust in your life. A little nature, some trees. Get out of the city. I am leading the most important march for freedom right now. Out of the cities and into the woods where there's plenty of freedom to go around. Don't live paycheck to paycheck. And millions of people are getting help from all kinds of lenders. According to the latest available numbers from the Credit Bureau TransUnion, about 3 million auto loans and 15 million credit card accounts earn some kind of program to let people skip or make partial payments. Those are probably low estimates. According to the analytics company Black Knight, 4.75 million homeowners, or 9% of all mortgages, have entered into forbearance plans. This is a long story. Um, I'm, I'm going to skip the rest of this, skip ahead to the end. Um... Let's see, just and with eviction moratoriums rising, excuse me, expiring in parts of the country, he says action is needed right away to help people who can't pay the rent. Meanwhile, as many other aspects of the outbreak, there are disparities along socioeconomic and racial lines. As Panamano said with her group in a national survey, 25% of Latinos are already falling behind with their payments. 28% of African Americans had fallen behind, comparing to 12% of whites that had fallen behind. And I know the racists are tempted to say, see, black people are less good at saving money. There's a good quote to take out of context. No. Um, <laughs> but no, when you're economically disadvantaged, it's one of the things that goes along with it is that it's harder to build up savings. No surprise. Now, to put this Economic collapse, very planned, delivered economic collapse, into some historical perspective. 
We go to news.yahoo.com via AFP. Heather Scott writes, Pandemic drives broadest economic collapse in 150 years, according to the World Bank. The coronavirus pandemic inflicted a, quote, swift and massive shock that has caused the broadest collapse of the global economy since 1870, despite unprecedented government support, the World Bank said Monday. Now, (laughs) there's a lie already embedded in this, whether it's the author or just the government propaganda behind it, who knows, but unprecedented government support. Remember, government caused this entire economic crisis. They rang the false alarm of coronavirus. And then instead of giving the people the freedom to set our own standards of risk and best practices for protecting ourselves from this non-threat of a virus with a lower fatality rate than testifying against Hillary Clinton, I should come up with more jokes than that. A lower fatality rate than... Going hunting with Dick Cheney. Hey. Uh, <laughs> uh, a lower fatality rate than a visit to Jeffrey Epstein's private island. Uh, a lower fatality rate than Russian roulette. There's just a few off the top of my head. We got to start. We get, I got to get some better lines. Got to get some better writers. Uh, <laughs> The world economy is expected to contract by 5.2% this year, the worst recession in 80 years. But the sheer number of countries suffering economic losses means the scale of the downturn is worse than any recession in 150 years, the World Bank said in its latest Global Economic Prospects report. This is a deeply sobering outlook with the crisis likely to leave long-lasting scars and pose major global challenges, said World Bank Group Vice President for Equitable Growth, <laughs> Finance and Institutions, Sela Pazar Bosioglu. <laughs> this title, oh my gosh, this is perfect. Hey, while we're ripping you off, we're going to create a world group by World Bank Group Vice Presidential Position, the Vice President for Equitable Growth, Finance, and Institutions. And the name of this person is Sela Pazar Basioglu. I'm definitely not pronouncing that right, but I at least sounded out each syllable. The depth of the crisis will drive 70 to 100 people into extreme poverty. Worse than the prior estimate of 60 million, that's 70 million, 70 to 100 million people. And while the Washington-based development lender projects a rebound for 21, there will be a, there's a risk, a second wave of outbreaks could undermine the recovery and turn the crisis into an economic crisis into a financial one that will see a wave of default, which is already coming just with what's happened so far. Now, a second wave of outbreaks? What? Why are we concerned? Because a second wave of outbreaks would bring a second wave of government. An outbreak of statism, an outbreak of control and manipulation. 
Economists have been struggling to measure the impact of the crisis. They have likened to a global natural disaster, but the sheer size of the impact across so many sectors and countries has made it hard to calculate and made predictions about any recovery uncertain. And really, we know that recovery is not (laughs) something that could just happen naturally. It's only going to happen if governments allow it to happen. If they don't want a recovery, we won't have one. Though dramatic, the current forecast falls short of the Great Depression, which saw a global contraction of 14.5% from 1930 to 1932, which, remember, was centered around manipulations of the U.S. stock market. While the post-war downturn in 45 to 46 was 13.8%. So, if this continues, we're going to find ourselves in a a bigger historical event. And it's worth noting, like, how how bad is this? You know, we say it's a hundred-year flood. It's one that comes out only a hundred, every hundred years. Well, this is the broadest economic collapse in 150 years. And if you look back over 150 years, how many viruses have there been worse than Corona? Dozens, maybe even hundreds, probably hundreds. I think it's worth taking a step back and going, yeah. This is like the 150-year economic flood of government-induced suffering. Buckle up. It's going to be with us for a while. We have another super chat. Who do we have? Oh, another Scott hanging out now. Scott chiming in. For $4.20, thank you, Scott. Pull up fluoride alerts page about IQ. I, uh, yeah, there's a lot. <laughs> oh, yeah, if you don't know to not drink the tap water yet, happy to take requests for $4.20. You didn't say, did he say smoke a bowl before you get into the last news rundown on your show? Number of I think that's what he's trying to tell us. We're going to go a little bit long today. We're going, to, we'll go, we're going to go like 10, 15 extra today just to catch up on news from last week. Some of the headlines we've covered so far already have been uh, catch-up news stories. We do have a few hot ones we want to get into today still. Um, some election news, some more economic news, um, some positive health news as well we're going to get to today. So with about... 20 minutes left in the show while I pack this bowl. Jim, CJ, could you bring Jim up on screen? He's been, he's got the, uh, the requested page about fluoride and IQ pulled up. And just quick background here. Everybody needs to know, like, the basics of fluoride. This is something I've, I mean, Alex Jones, like, Made a lot of money selling fluoride awareness T-shirts for years. I don't know if he's still. I haven't seen him out on the streets much lately. But um, fluoride's bad shit. It's an industrial waste product that they use. Uh, no, he's got it on screen. Oh, look, you see it there? You see it in your streamer? Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm he's got he's in got the chat bar, so I don't really. Yeah, see yeah, it no. CJ is hot on it this this yeah, morning. Look at this fluoride and IQ, the sixty five studies, and now. 
they put fluoride in most drinking water supplies in the United States. Most tap water in the U.S. has fluoride in it. Don't drink tap. Is it, is it going to kill you? It's, you know, drinking fluoride occasionally is not as bad for you as being dehydrated occasionally. Don't skip drinking water because it's fluoridated. Still better to drink the water, unless you're in Flint, Michigan, I guess. But um, whatever your main regular source of drinking water is, make sure that that is fluoride-free. And there's there if you get the really good filters, like if you live where um, you can your your tap water is fluoridated, and you don't want to you want the cheapest. I just promote like water consciousness in general. I mean, mine. My thing is, like, I carry a big, I carry a cheap jug. I have a few nice water bottles sometimes if I'm traveling. I'll take those, but for for working construction, for just around, and then I you know try to drink like a gallon a day, or at least I have a sense of okay, it's a gallon of water. You know, I can drink. You know, most of that day, I put I put a tea bag in there. That's why it looks like urine. Who see me on the show going, ah, I'm drinking piss out of his pee jug again. Like, he screwed up his bottles. Now, it's just it's just iced tea. If it was urine, that would make me gag, right? Yeah. Um, and this is this is actually not the best here, even. But it's not fluoride. It's uh, This is well water that we get trucked to our property. And I, I don't feel... I should filter it probably just for the metals if I, if I was going to do it long term. But it doesn't have fluoride in it. And that's, that's the critical thing. It's fluoride-free. And, um, or at least it's no added fluoride. I'm sure there's sort of like trace groundwater elements in here. Um, but what Scott wanted us to cover in particular, oh, so what I was is if you live in a place where your, your best system is drink the tap water and it's fluoridated, get a Berkey. And they're, they're expensive. Um, but it's better than, it's, it's worth it. Uh, get, get a real water filter that can actually filter. Uh, fluoride out of your water, and it, it's a good investment. I have, can you pass me the gray bottle there? I just want to show people this. I think this, yeah, this is a Brita. I don't know if this is fluoride filtration. It probably does most of the metals here, and I really should switch to this that, um, for what I'm doing here. Uh, but see, I know that I don't need to worry about taking the fluoride out, but this has like a you know pretty serious filter built into it. For those listening on the audio, you can hear cool sounds my metal water bottles making. Um, but here, so what, what Scott wanted us to bring up or to cover today was just how bad it is with the health impact. And some people, the, 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 if you brush, like fluoride is in your toothpaste, is how they trick you. Well, if it's in your toothpaste, it must be good for your teeth, so drink it. It's going to my stomach, asshole. Like, where, how do you get that? How do you make that leap? So, uh, Scott's request was specifically to cover <laughs> the, uh, was it the, the IQ studies? And this is one I've, I've, I've only, you know, glancingly studied. I mean, it's, it's enough. Like, I know enough about fluoride to say, all right, I'm going to avoid it as best as I practically can. But, um, if that all wasn't enough to scare you, Jim? Uh, we got another Super Chat. That's what I was... Wait, you want to jump to the Super Chat? That. There's no message with it, though. It's just a dollar Super Chat. Just uh, From just, who? From who? We'll read their Draco name. Chainmail. Chain, Draco Chainmail. Draco. Draco, yes, Draco. 
Draco, and that's Shayna Male. I think Shana Male. The way it's written like that. Oh, but okay, yes, I, I don't know. <clears throat> Thank you for a dollar, Draco. Good presence in our show every day. So, Nestle Jim. The mine, our party said. Nestle? Yeah, I think oh, well. the water and fluoride and everything. All right, well, read the IQ bit, what you got pulled up here, Jim, while I uh, fry some, I mean, enhance some brain cells with some enhance cannabis. Enhance some brain cells. Just read the paragraph? Yeah, whatever you think is hot there. As of May 2020, a total of 73 studies have investigated the relationship between fluoride and human intelligence. Of these investigations, 65 studies have found that elevated fluoride exposure is associated with reduced IQ in humans. That's pretty... Uh, now, how significant? I mean, it's significantly... You know, like I, when I hear stuff like that, I'm kind of like, uh, it's sensationalist, but I mean, it doesn't matter. There's like, there's... There, Tons of reasons to avoid fluoride right. beside this. But I, it's like they're measuring it. Like you can, me- like, if it was some weird abstract thing, but what they're saying here, right. can, can you get into that? Does that does that substantiate in this? Keep reading, please. Okay, scrolling up. Uh, well, over 60 animal studies have found that the fluoride exposure, exposure impairs the learning and or memory capacity of animals. The human studies, which are based on IQ examinations of 23,872 children and 245 adults, provide compelling evidence that fluoride exposure during the early years of life can damage a child's developing brain. It's all just I was like, I want to go back. Like, I lived in, you know, mostly just a couple neighborhoods in my childhood. I'm like, would I be smarter if there wasn't fluoride in the water back then? <laughs> I didn't drink so much. Or swallow my toothpaste. By the way, little little side thing there. Do you, your teeth aren't doing so great? <laughs> my like my my teeth look better than they are, you know. Um, but I have a crowding, and you see people with smaller jaws than than you know. You, you know their head is kind of designed. Even me, like I have a weak chin. Yeah, and I wonder if it's from childhood malnutrition. And I don't, like, I wasn't starved as a kid. And I'm not thinking, like, I was really mal, like, not literally malnourished, but having certain nutritional deficiencies as a child, preventing full bone growth at, at that critical stage. And I think, I think we're going to, like, this is something that I, is, I think, on the verge of common knowledge, where it's, like, it's still being studied. I've seen, I remember, like, just my years of research, I've seen, you know, little things like this. But why, why do we have vision problems? Like really, how did how did nature design this amazing fucking thing called the human eyeball, and then yeah. fuck it up to the point where like what what portion of the American population it gets nearsighted and just like can't see by the time they're ten? Like really couldn't survive in the wilderness. Like the vision is so that, that if they were in the wilderness, they'd be like like a cripple, like afraid of everything that's further than five feet away from them. And I like I had I needed glasses. I had I had I, I don't need them now because I got LASIK. Best three five hundred dollars I ever spent. By the way, um, but like I you know teeth, teeth if your jaw doesn't fully form if your teeth don't form properly, you know is it you know I my suspicion and I, I don't think this yet has been fully proved but that the modern American food processed diet being given to young children. Generally, being and, and the USDA food pyramid that had us all eating a fuck ton of carbs, mm. like bread and grain, and sugar. I, I really think you know 
maybe maybe someone in the audience wants to like dig up the studies to prove me right or wrong because we probably already have the, the basic scientific evidence for this. But that it's I, I think that that it's it's soon going to be common understanding. Yes, if you don't feed your kids right, they're going to grow up and and. It's not just that, it's why has there been this wave of need for vision correction and and dental work in the United States? Like, why is it that orthodontistry is, like, a thing? Like, it's, like we can't just have most people grow their teeth naturally straight? Like, that's not, we didn't think, and I'll bet, I'll bet you're going to find out it's because parents take their kids to McDonald's. You go, fuck. Mm-hmm. And they're See, only given enough education to know that milk uh, makes strong bones, but they don't say anything about needing magnesium for your body to absorb the calcium. You know? Yeah. And, education around it. And, like, I, I think I grew up really well. And, and allergies, I still, like, today, this morning, I woke up early because I couldn't breathe out of my nose. It might have been Amen. Fair enough. Fair. I could have inhaled just a little bit of Portland and had a little bit of nasal irritation from yesterday, maybe. Yeah, but no, I have allergies. I've had to be on shots. Like, really? Honestly, if it wasn't for modern allergy medication, I'd be dead. Or some kind of cripple. I don't mean like, oh, wow, hey, windstorm. Can can the mic, can that, is that The whole RV was just shaking there. We had some dust devils. We had dust dust twisters out here. Yeah, really. Got to build that tire wall. Like, like even right now, like I have a tickle in my nose that won't go away. It's really freaking annoying. I don't. Is it? How, is it, it has been noticeable in my voice today. Has, <laughs> but really, like there are so many. There have been so many days. I mean, I mean, maybe I would move. And I, I wonder if it's nutrition. You know, my parents being a little germaphobic and kind of isolating me as a kid. Um, but between like between having fucked up teeth fucked up eyes, and a fucked up immune system? Yeah, if it wasn't for modern medicine, I wouldn't be alive at age 38. No way I would have made it this far. How much of that is a product of modern diet, though? Just being fed. And and my parents were good, engaged, attentive parents for the most part. Like, my mom cooked at home most of the time. I remember going to McDonald's as a kid was a treat, not a regular thing. Um, and yet I have these, like, three, and, and by today's standards, these aren't even major health. I have, like, three sets of sort of moderate health issues, right? You need vision correction, bad teeth, and, and, and allergies. But even without, like, without glasses, if I had no vision, if you, have you ever had to wear glasses, Jim? No. How many Americans have to wear glasses? Can I look this up? Look it up real quick. All right, while I do, uh, I'm going to do a a few stories here about voting in the upcoming election, because a lot of Americans right now are asking, is there going to be an election at all in November? So from theatlantic.com, why Americans might not trust the election results. Many are already worried about the integrity of November's vote. Nearly three in five Americans don't have confidence in the honesty of our elections, a February Gallup poll found. Republicans, Democrats, state officials, grandmothers, first-time voters, the politically engaged, the anti-institutionals, pretty much the only thing they could agree on was their doubts about the integrity of our democracy. Is it getting better? (laughs) 
Well, let's go to the Wall Street Journal, WSJ.com. D.C. lets voters submit ballots by email after mail problems. Some states that are preparing for voting by mail to be more popular in the November election than in past year's hiccups on Tuesday. The Washington, D.C. Board of Elections, inundated with complaints from voters who said they didn't receive absentee ballots in the mail, created an unusual workaround for Tuesday's primary, allowing voters to submit ballots by email. Welcome to the technocracy. It matters not who votes, but who counts the vote. That conflicts with security recommendations typically given by experts, but one local official said she thought it was worth the risk given the unusual circumstances. Quote, I guess there are Russian hackers that can do anything, but I doubt they're really concerned with the Ward 2 D.C. election, said Council Member Alyssa Silverman. And in a way, she's right. You see where she's going with this, right? Maybe she's like, well, I'm going with this. Localization! Localization! Hey! Much less room for corruption, manipulation of the elections and of, of politics in general when it's localized. Yeah. There's no incentive for corruption when the power of stake is so low and the means of accountability are relatively high. And the ability to subvert the will of a small population when exit polls are reasonably reliable at this point, we'd have government much more in line with the will of the people just with the effect that localization would have on the integrity of elections. So, Back to the Atlantic. We almost certainly won't know who won the presidency on election night. We definitely won't know who won many of the lower level races. In 2018, a Senate race in Arizona didn't get settled for a week. Some House races were still being decided. By the way, that was the one I was almost in. Still being decided around Christmas. Inevitably, pockets of margin shifting votes will pop up late given some People the false impression that they are suddenly appearing in convenient spots to change the results. Now, going back about this whole conundrum in the national conversation in the Atlantic story, um, back to the second paragraph, and that was before the pandemic made everything worse. Now, on top of questions from President Trump about the legitimacy of the election Russian interference, claims of fraud, history of voter suppression, all sorts of new worries because of corona, long lines, unsafe sites, canceled elections, closed voting locations, absentee ballots faked, or claimed to be faked, the collapse of the voting infrastructure that's been haphazardly reassembled on the fly. Now, why do they want it to be like this? It's not just, oh, we can cheat this election or that election. It's because when things are confusing... How do we get election results? From the mainstream media on election nights. Who really decides who's the president? CNN, ABC, NBC, Fox News. The results are in. We got, who calls the election? Well, Fox News closed Florida at 9.15 p.m. Eastern Time where they could just... Wait, Fox? We don't have like a, a national government system of of even keeping track of this. But it makes it much harder for there to be any change in the sentiment. Well, last time we went with Democrats and Republicans, so we're pretty sure that this time we're going to go with Democrats and Republicans. Whoever your pick for president is, 
If the other guy wins, will you really believe it? Will you trust the margin? Will you trust the results of the lower-level races with fewer voters and less public attention? As Jocelyn Benson, the Michigan Secretary of State, told us a few weeks ago, there are a lot of uncertainties in this time. Democracy could be one of them. On May 20, Benson woke up to Donald Trump misinterpreting her decision to mail absentee ballot applications to everyone in her state. He tweeted that she was mailing absentee ballots, which he later corrected, and that she was doing so illegally and without authorization, which didn't make sense. Then he claimed that he was going to hold up funding to Michigan, though there's no funding for him to hold up, and that absentee ballots constituted voter fraud, though he'd used one himself earlier this year to vote in Florida's presidential primary. He issued the same threat to Nevada, then seemed to back off, then struggled in an Oval Office appearance to explain what he was talking about. In the days since, the president, who has repeatedly claimed that the election he won was rigged against him, has tweeted several more accusations of fraud, and on Tuesday in the Rose Garden insisted that people who can't legally vote are going to be sent ballots in California, though they won't be. So, jumping ahead now to CNN.com, CNN poll, Trump losing ground to Biden. Amid chaotic week, not just that. A new CNN poll conducted by SSRS finds Trump's approval rating down seven points in the last month as the president falls further behind presumptive Democrat nominee Joe Biden, whose support now stands at its, high, at its highest level and CNN and CNN polling. And from Mediaite.com, our next story in the queue, just in. Stunning new CNN poll shows Biden 14 poll points over Trump. 14 points. The poll asks, suppose that the presidential election was being held today and you had to choose between Joe Biden as the Democratic Party's candidate and Donald Trump as the Republican Party's candidate, who would be who would you be more likely to vote for? 55 Biden, 41 Trump, the, the, the biggest spread. <clears throat> Remember, I've been, I've been telling you for a while now that the, the, one of the underlying narratives here, I mean, there's, the, there, there, there's a sort of like surface narrative of COVID-19, George Floyd. There's, there's the, 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 you know, underlying narrative of they're using the money to rip us off and increase government power. There's like a, you know, a deeper narrative of what we don't know is actually happening between competing super class powers right now. But somewhere below the surface, what all this represents is a trap that the Democrats set for Trump. The uh, Democrat wing of the Socialist Party is in competition with the Republican wing of the Socialist Party. And I love seeing them fight amongst each other. I love seeing them, you know, fighting over the levers of power rather than using all of their energy to just use them against us as they do in, you know, communist one-party China. And it just saves them, you know, a little energy that they'd spend on this 
charade, this whole political show of distraction and, you know, the confidence game of, of the racket of government. Because, you know, if they had included Joe Jorgensen in this poll, the Libertarian nominee for president, things would look a lot different. But they want to keep you in this two-party system. And when they fight, we see that, you know, Corona was like a trap they set for Trump. And he got one foot in and thought he could get out, and then found out his other foot that he was trying to stand on, whoop, slipped out from underneath him on a banana peel named George Floyd. And next thing you know, he's down 14 points. But they are not going to let it stay like this. I'll tell you why. The system is deliberately engineered for the two parties in power to stay more or less neck and neck the whole time. Because if it got imbalanced, it would be very easy for a third party insurgency. But because they keep them balanced, they're able to bully people into well, if you don't vote for the lesser evil, the greater evil is going to win. Well, how about voting for not evil? Joe Jorgensen, Libertarian, on the ballot in 2020. What we have to look forward to in November of this year? Anybody's guess. All right, Jim, you got that statistic for us? 75% of adults use some sort of vision correction, according to the Vision Council of America. 75%! Okay. What is it around the world? Because uh, then you could you could at least generally ascertain that the difference is a product of American diets. More than one billion people around the world need eyeglasses, but don't have them. Researchers say. Okay. <laughs> Not quite what we're looking for, but with world population of seven billion ish. That where I should know this. I like having this, yeah. this kind of perspective. 61%. What percentage of the world population wears glasses? 61%. Majority. And in the United States, it's, it's 75%. Right. So it is significant. Now, that's a small enough margin. It could be industrialization. Okay, yeah, no, we need we're, we need to be rounded up to 8 billion. It's 7.8. World population clock. Growing at 1% a year. Slowing growth now. Yeah. Um, let's see. Asked, do you think it's in our baby formula that we give our children? Could be some. Could, it's definitely. I think it's simpler than it's this or it's this or it's this. In of love. foods, it's nutritional deficiencies at critical stages in development prevent the proper forming of your cornea, or or lead to the distortion, or maybe it's in in a certain growth phase that creates that. Because well, I, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I would bet that really what it comes down to is, uh, and not as necessarily nutritional deficiencies, as Jim pointed out, with calcium, it's more complicated. Do you call a calcium deficiency a magnesium deficiency if you're getting plenty of, of calcium but no magnesium absorbing it, right? But some form of nutritional deficiency in, in the developmental years leading to um, you know immune problems, chronic disease issues. I mean, I, of course, obesity, really an even bigger obvious one. I, I mean, I should be. What was me? With my perfect surgically corrected eyes and my allergies I got to manage and my 
decent teeth. Where they're, I, I'm not obese. <laughs> you know, like, and as much as I want to say, like, well, it's your fault. You're the one eating yourself, making making yourself. No. Yeah, it, it, you can blame your parents. You know, I mean, my, really, you, you know, and, and this comes down to the whole nature, nurture, responsibility, individual will thing. We're not going to unpack entirely in the next couple minutes, but um, yeah. Anyways, according to the current worldometers dot info, current world population seven billion seven hundred ninety million twenty two thousand nine hundred and fifty three nine hundred fifty six nine hundred fifty eight nine hundred yeah. <laughs> um, <clears throat> all right, one other announcement I want to make today. The Love Bus is going on the road. This is from freedomsphoenix.com. Love Bus Delivery Tour begins June 6, 2020. That was two days ago in Hennecart, New Hampshire. Updates and pictures added daily. So they had the bus in Phoenix. They finished moving out. Our friends Donna and Ernie Hancock, Freedoms, the freedomsphoenix.com team. Finished moving out of their pretty well-developed homestead in Glendale, Arizona, and got the bus done enough to be roadworthy again with all the new furniture in it. Drove it all the way back to New Hampshire to start their tour. Thank you for the, getting the photos up, CJ. They are going to be posting daily updates on where they are, what they have seen, who we have met, who may be a guest on an upcoming show, what a schedule, blah, blah, blah. Um, so you can see Ernie playing with the, uh, the front end loader at, uh, at, at Jay Noon's Domestead in New Hampshire. What are they? Henniker. Really cool place. I'm in Jay Noon's Telegram group as well. And see all the updates there for his dome projects. He's got a little bird run. Really cool homestead. A lot of great stuff out there. But he's also got a house built. And if you scroll down to the house, you're already past it. Go back up. Um... This isn't the best picture of the house, but it is a really interesting experimental dome. There you go. Dome structure with this house where they've got it, – it's it's not fair to call it two domes. I mean, yes, it's two domes, but it's almost like two cylinder buildings with dome roofs and third stories with uh, – I think it's on one of them a third, and on the other one it's like a fourth story – parapet window thing and uh, really cool architectural concept and the uh, yeah they're too far apart to make boob jokes but it's a cool design alright um, so check out freedomsphoenix.com for more on this and if you just scroll down real quick you can see all the cool stuff going on at our friend Jay's place with the uh, the Domestead project I think is what he calls it <coughs> Excuse me. So I mentioned earlier um, this story from WashingtonExaminer.com. Former NYPD commissioner claims 600 officers considering exit from the force amid George Floyd protests. Not going to get too far into this. It's not really substantiated yet. I just want to point out that, like, this is the positive that comes out of these protests. Because, um, you know, I, I like to say, you know, real change is happening in the in-between time and the progress. Well. Yeah, there is a. There, I, I kind of want to walk that statement back a little bit to say there are some good breaking points that, that are being hit 
because of the protests and the attention, if one of them is a lot of cops just don't like their jobs as much anymore and they're like, yeah, screw it. I'm out of here. Then you're going to see some change. Pretty cool story. Um, and I think that's that's really all we have to cover today. We have a couple stories we're going to get to tomorrow that I want to get into these health ones. Another interesting global health statistic, as long as we're on that. Today, a uh, global study reveals 4 in 10 adults living with a gastrointestinal disorder. Whoa, yeah, look at that dramatic picture. I got to tease that one out. Doom scrolling, why we can't just look, why we just can't look away. I think that's something that kind of um, really deserves some proper examination. We're going to get into that when we have some time tomorrow. Can negative thinking lead to dementia? People with a gloomy outlook could be more likely to get degenerative illness. Research suggests we're going to talk definitely about that. And happiness causes freedom. How to live to 100 and enjoy it? Yes, diet and exercise do matter, but as scientists are only just realizing, friendships can add years to your life, too. We're going to untangle some uh, correlation versus causation in all of those stories tomorrow in the longer health segment. But that's about all the time we have for today. Jim, any last thoughts or critical comments uh, that we There was one to? I wanted to make sure to get to you before the end of the show, so it would be a good one to end on just to throw your notes out there. I can't scroll up enough because of the screen so I'm just going to have to remember I don't, can't remember who it was but they'll know who they are and they said they're interviewing Joe Jorgensen in a few hours and they'd like advice on uh, topics to ask questions to ask things like that so well this is what say depends on your audience you know I, I'm, I know that we have somewhat of an insider libertarian audience we have right. fellow libertarian media producers watching which is always an honor uh, to inspire other people to do the same thing. Imitation being the sincerest form of flattery. You know, it's funny, I just, by me, by me, sidebar, wax nostalgic while I'm smoking this pipe. <coughs> Take it, people. Really, to get a question like that from our audience is amazing yeah. to me. When I started Adam vs. the Man, it was 2011. And it wasn't a new thing back then. I'm sorry, it was 2010. 2010, we actually said. 2011 was a TV show. We went from radio to TV in 2011. 2010 was the year it started when I ran for Congress in New Mexico and couldn't shut up when the race was over and got the radio show on. AM 1550, caveat, more positive talk radio. Kirby. And then TV show and, yeah, and independent and all that for most of my time of, uh, as Adam versus a man, I've obviously been independent. And when I first started, we were kind of coming into a golden age of independent media uh, on the internet where it was before the major Facebook censorship and YouTube censorship kicked in. Those were the big ones. And a lot of other little things too. And during that time, I was like, in what I was doing, independent libertarian media, top of the pile. Like, and right now, I'm kind of coming back. There are probably a couple, couple dozen people, uh, you know, ahead of me doing, you know, a libertarian-based message uh, in terms of audience size. At least a couple dozen ahead of us right now. We'll see if we get back to number one in that category. That'd be really nice. But it's it's all, it's even more satisfying 
in, in, in the intervening years. And it's been really cool as a presidential candidate to get around and be interviewed by a lot of other guys and be like, for in gals and for them to say, hey, I'm doing this because you inspired me with Adam versus the man. It's like paying me back. Now I get an interview. Cool. And just, just even, you know, with where we are now, like just having been as persistent as we've been. You know, part of, like, even if my audience was as big as it was at its peak, I wouldn't be anywhere near number one now. They're probably, a, they're probably a dozen productions now bigger libertarian media outlets than than I was even at the peak of Adam versus the man. And now that we're we're off the peak, if we just you know hopefully we get we get back to the peak within the next like like in about six months timeline something like that because things are going really well. CJ is doing an amazing job being patient with me going 25 minutes over time and not wrapping up yet. Uh, but with the post-production and tracking YouTube statistics and all of that, um, I, you know, I think I, I, I don't want to, you know, set goals based on competition, but in terms of just getting our audience back about to the, to, to where, where it was at our peak. And I guess before I went to jail in, well, we were coming off the peak already when I went to jail because that was when YouTube censorship was kicking in. It was, what, 20, late 2013. So it would be like mid-late 2013 was probably the peak for Adam versus the Man when we were doing a three-hour live show five nights a week plus 20 minutes scripted five days a week. Um, it was a lot. And it was, it was, you know, I was making, I was getting two million views a month on YouTube. We're actually pretty close to that already because this live opportunity is a great way around the censorship and gives us, oh, but we're, yeah, CJ, you want to pop on? How close are we to the equivalent of two million views a month? Well, you are the most censored person I've ever seen on YouTube, honestly, sir. Um, <laughs> uh, for somebody that has two hundred and forty-two thousand subscribers to only have the viewership you have right now, and and I see the statistics, I see the data, I see how your videos, how you are censored to the point where that you can't monetize properly they they hold your videos until after they've already been put out to your audience i mean put it to you this way compared to other youtube channels that have uh, similar viewers subscribers numbers uh you are probably about uh i want to say like a 25th of what your audience is by comparison and you still pull in significant amount of impressions and a and for what the dedicated viewers provide, it's about uh, about a quarter of what you're saying here. But again, yeah. I can see the censorship. I can see the uh, videos, how they hold, how they don't allow you to monetize. They hold your, like this show, for example, Does it gets held by YouTube for an hour after we end the uh, broadcast. And it's then immediately put under review where they determine whether or not you will be able to monetize this video or if they're going to demonetize it. And I've, I can see it all. So to say that you are one of the most censored on YouTube would be historically accurate, sir. Yeah. So now YouTube is counting impressions, which is a different feature. That's, than that's, who, that's how many people see you, uh, yeah. that can see your, right. your content. Uh, but like, I view it like this. You have 120 million total impressions over your course of YouTube uh, career. So that should and say that a third, 
a third of the population on of this country total knows who Adam Kokesh is just on YouTube alone. Or of you. But yeah, no, 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 no impressions different. are different than individual views. They right. have a separate category. Right. And so view, but but we're probably yeah, so we're, we're probably doing the equivalent of like half a million views a month roughly now. 600 600 to 700,000 a month roughly, sir. Well, that's great cuz you know that when I, when I say we were at 2 million a month at our peak with with all the affiliated views and other platform views, it was probably like 3 million. So it sounds like we're we're all we're like at a quarter of the way there. We've only been doing this for a couple months, and and still growing really fast. And I I hate to take the time when we're so far into the show, but for people who are you know all the way at the end here, there's a really important pitch at the end of this, which is like please don't just support us on Patreon, but be an active, engaged member of the audience because that's how we keep this available. For, for you and to be able to share it and bring more people into this conversation, into this bigger Adam versus the man freedom family community. And, you know, to everybody who's on our private Patreon chat on Telegram, it's awesome. I'm loving it. I'm pulling content from you guys, really making this a collaborative conversation. And I think that's the only way we can do a show that's as censored as this one. We need an independent funding source. It doesn't depend on any single platform. YouTube is one. Can't depend on it. Patreon is a lot more reliable, less connected to the media, but it's still there. And then merchandise we're getting set up with G.I. Mary Jane right now. Hopefully in the next week or so we'll have that available to promote and be able to add stuff very easily with print on demand. But really it's it's being engaged and, and sharing our videos when we know they're not getting put in people's feeds. If you're watching, and you know what we should be doing, we, we really should be building this like into the culture of the audience in the show that, you know, when we stop from the opening monologue, <clears throat> you know, we encourage everybody, share the live stream now. Like, if you're watching this live, go share it now. Just go put it on your Facebook. You know, and every day it's just one post. Or, you know, make a point every day, share one of our video clips, whichever one you think is best to share with people. Like, it really takes that because we are fighting an uphill battle, and we're still winning. We're still making progress. And CJ, you think in about six months, maybe growing like this, we should be a back back about where we were at our peak. I would say that leading up to the nomination for the party, we hit a peak, and then it kind of faded away as I think people were settling into oh, the of course. aftermath. There was, well, there was a bump. There was a convention right. bump. But I also think we're going to grow moving in, especially with the way that uh, the interviews are being set up and, and people that will be most likely to share to their audiences as well. And as we pull in more libertarian names and maybe even some you know other outside libertarians just to have those conversations, uh, I would definitely think that we'll see an uptick for sure. Before I yeah. hop off this screen here, sir, I want to remind everybody again, freedomline.com. You can reach me, producer, at the Freedom Line. And yes, sir, we are moving an hour earlier next week, two hours. We can kind of go over a little bit, given the fact we're a little early, you know, a little later, or a little earlier, excuse me. And then uh, other than that, it's uh, just good to have you back, sir. All right. And uh, yeah, I just uh, thank you so much, CJ, for making all this possible and really stepping up as, uh, you know, essentially the same way that, that we all do as activists. And uh Sorry, there's one other thing I wanted to... Oh, for guests and debates. That's going to be a huge way to grow the show. It's awesome to have Mike on. CJ is really well set up for this. So if you want to email CJ with, uh, like, 
help him out. If you want, you want to, you want to decide who my next ten guests are going to be. Send an email right now to producer at thefreedomline.com with names and email addresses, and he'll just cut and paste our standard invite to all of them. And you know, he'd be grateful to have that help. If there's someone you want to debate me, uh, you know, we'll make it happen. I think we'd have a lot of fun with that. All right, with that. Adam at thefreedomline.com. Peace and love, y'all. We will talk to you tomorrow.